Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract with a big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. And they offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. It's a true story. That's my family, Kate. It's not me. Do you expect me to talk? I'd just like to preface this episode that any dodgy impressions of Marlon Brando will be done by Chris and Dave. <laughs> Make him another, we get bruised. But yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> I think you probably get refused. Eh, hello. I pity the fool. <laughs> Mr. T is. Ton Vito Corleone. Anyway, hi, and welcome to episode 102 of the I pity the fool that doesn't do him. I pity the fool who comes in here on the day of my daughter's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we don't want to. We don't want to uh, jinx him. So, Mr. V. <laughs> yeah, Mr. V. Instead of Mr. T, Mr. V. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, hello and welcome to episode one hundred and twelve of Do You Expect Us to Talk? I am your host, Becca, and with me, as always, are my good delirious Dave and Chris. How are you both doing? Uh, good evening, folks. Conciliary. That means I'm not. I'm not in the family. I'm just a trusted advisor. Yeah, you're just an advisor. You can. I'm, I'm, I'm not a pure. Class, so you can sort of. Right. And, I, no, I'm, and I'm, a, really. I'm a bastard child <laughs> of the family. There you are. We took yeah. you in. It's fine. Chris, I'm so glad you were available to record this though, because this, this is going to be a bumper episode of Chris's fruity corner. <laughs> <laughs> All the child scaring yeah. origins. So e- e- expect the vineyard version to be about seven hours long <laughs> as he appraises each grape individually. <laughs> we get more in next um, the next week's episode too. Mm. More Sicilian vineyards. So what film are we covering tonight? <laughs> yes, so we are taking a break in between series to recover a fairly short series epic Godfather series. So tonight we shall review Godfather, part one, starring Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, James Caan, Diane Keaton, Talia Shire, John Cazale and many, many others based on the novel by Mario Puto. also co-wrote the script along with 
Francis Ford Coppola and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and released 1972. Yeah, we thought we'd go uh, go for a nice short lighter tone for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was this or commentating on Austin Powers, and we thought this would be more gigglesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, small dick jokes in this. Uh... <laughs> more fruit jokes than this. It's that scene where he fucks an orange, isn't it? Before he moves on to the grapes. But anyway, I thought we'd get all the um, all the dodgy impressions out of the way. Um, I was almost going to ask like my uncle if he can come on the show, just because he does a really good impression of Marlon Brando. I'm glad it's of Marlon Brando. I thought you were going to stop it. He does a really good impression. No. Yeah, it's Joe Pasquale. But... <laughs> he does a good impression generally. No, he's got good impressions generally, but his impression of um, Dog Pellet is just like, is amazing. But luckily I didn't, unfortunately. So. I wonder where the idea came from, like, putting two like, bits of cotton wool in his mouth. Well, that was all Brando. Um, method, method. We're going to talk a little... Well, that's a strange method, isn't it? It's a very odd method, but he's, you know, he's well... That's the method. For anyone listening who hasn't studied acting, whenever you hear about method acting, it's just hitting (laughs) your cheeks at all times. (laughs) He was known for being a method actor, wasn't he? Uh, Yeah, he was. was, uh, And we actually see the sort of... um, the teacher of method acting in next week's film. We'll cover that with Lee Strasberg. Um, Obviously, a a lot of that sort of stuff and sense memory and all of that was taught by him. Um, this this has a phenomenal cast, um, but it was a phenom- It was not quite as strong at the time in that Al Pacino wasn't the star, quite the star he went on to be. But you know, and Marlon Brando's career was in a little bit of a funk. But yeah, you look back on it now. I mean, John Cazale, John Cazale starred in five films. He was a, a stage actor mainly, mm-hmm. but he starred in five films, and all of them were nominated for Best Picture. So, The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, which is a fantastic film, by That's the way. That's a brilliant and, film. Oh, the Deer and, Hunter, and, isn't it? And The Deer Hunter. Um, and he was taken sick with, uh, well, you sometimes see lung cancer. I've read it as bone cancer in the past, but he died at the age of 42. No, he uh, was quite, yeah, quite young, 42. Uh, when you watch The Deer Hunter, he he shot all his scenes early in the shoot because he was dying. Yeah, he was, he was quite he was seeing Meryl Streep at the time, and Meryl Streep went to the director and sort of, got it all changed around because he wanted to finish his role but yeah what a career that is well, there's an actor in this who did nothing but star in best picture nominees amazing totally mm. superb uh brando himself his career was, was sort of a little bit past its best he was sort of in his late 40s by this point he's playing a lot older um hence the cotton wool yeah um yeah he sort of wanted him to have a sort of bulldog quality to him um, now, I mean, he made Last Town Go in Paris around this period, but apart from which is a, <laughs> sorry, which is a, yeah, he, he probably made it around <laughs> appearance as well. Um, but yeah, he passed the um, butter. Yeah, <laughs> um, he probably did. Um, <laughs> um, I wouldn't recommend that film as anything other than a curio because it, it is bordering on porn, frankly. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, he was up on an obscenity charge in Italy. Leonardo <laughs> Bertolucci made the film. Um, this film is, is, is just a story of a, a director's nightmare. Now, it doesn't match something like Apocalypse Now which uh, was famously such a nightmare that it got a whole documentary made about the making of it called Hearts of Darkness. Um, but all the way through this film, well, most for most of this film, Coppola was under risk of being fired. 
the studio wanted none of his choices on anything. So this is a period piece. It's made in the early 70s, but it's set between about 1945 and about 1955, 56, something like that. It's about a decade. Um, that's a period piece. Now it's you know it's, it's comparatively be like main, making something in the nineties now. But they they wanted to make this fairly quickly and fairly cheaply to cash in on the success of the novel. Uh, this is Mario Puzo, writer of the first draft of Superman the movie. Uh, it's his third novel, and his first two novels didn't do particularly well. So he deliberately went a bit more commercial on this. You watch the films and you, you, you think of a very classy product. The book is trash, in my opinion. Um, for those of you who have read it, feel free to disagree because most of the things that are, that are here in the films that went into making such a, a quality story and, and quality character work are in the book. But the book has a ludicrous subplot, which I'll get to when we sort of introduce a character in a, in a little while. And it's just really, really trashy. But it took off in public consciousness, sold millions of copies, left uh, Mario Puzo a very, very surprised millionaire. And um, although he had a gambling habit, so he struggled to keep ahead of his, his wealth, if you like. Um so they wanted to make this film fairly quickly. Bob Evans was the sort of lead producer at Paramount Pictures at this point on, on most of these films. He'd made his name with Love Story. Um, and in sort of shepherding this, this film through, they offered it to Elia Kazan first and others. And I've, I'm suddenly blanking on the names, but sort of some of the famous directors you can think of. Oh, Arthur Penn. Arthur Penn, who did um, Bonnie and Clyde, was offered it. And there's a very Bonnie and Clyde-ish scene in this film. Um, and they all turned it down. Um, gangster films of the time tended to have largely Jewish casts, funnily enough, and they were very trashy, just just like the novel this film is based on. They wanted a, they wanted somebody of a, Italian extraction, preferably, but I think they, they got Francis Ford Coppola in on the basis of a couple of things, really. Firstly, he was still relatively young and cheap at the point when he was hired. He was in his early 30s. Um, and he'd won an Academy Award around the time he was hired for the script for Patton, the George C. Scott film. So he had a bit of cachet behind his name, but I think they thought he was cheap and could be sort of pushed around a bit. Um, every decision he makes in this film is is subject to challenge. They didn't want Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando had a horrible reputation that I think most of us know about now. We certainly talked about it through Superman. He was known for being disruptive on sets and and just difficult to work with. And and his, his peak had sort of come and gone, really. And he was struggling to get work, or decent work anyway. Then you've got Al Pacino, a largely um, theatre actor. He wasn't wanted for Michael. I'm pretty sure, and I might be misremembering this, but I'm sure I've seen... A screen test with Martin Sheen for this, but I know they they tested James Khan for the role. Uh, they they just didn't want Al Pacino, this sort of short, insular actor. We think of him as very shouty now, but his performances were a lot smaller back in these days. Largely a theatre actor. I, the only film I'd seen him in that predates this is a film called The Panic in Needle Park, which I think is the year before, and I think that may even have been his first film. This is like his second or third. Um, they just, they didn't want Nino Rota, the guy who wrote the music for this film. They, Bob Evans wanted somebody a bit more Henry Mancini-like um, and, you know, a lot more use of source music. They wanted to set it in the 70s to save costs because pre-CG and stuff, the, the, the big sort of costs really come from 
costumes and period details and stuff like that. Uh, they wanted it to be two hours and 15 minutes. This film is two hours and 57 minutes. And all of these things we can talk through when we go through it. You've also got a director. They wanted. They thought it was going to be fairly action-heavy because it's a mobster film. Um, I mean, he was just under constant stays of execution. So he would, in the very first week, he shot the Salozzo scene, which is the scene where sort of um, uh, Mike really joins the family properly. And um, that's that. That saved his job for a while. The scene where um, uh, we see Talia Shire's character Connie beaten up by her husband—that was a, a desperate attempt to sort of put something a bit more actiony in. Edgy. Because <laughs> so just the idea. Like, right. <laughs> let's beat the shit out of her. Then uh, I must point out Talia Shire is his sister. Um, now, originally, he didn't want to cast her. This is one where you think, oh, well, he, he obviously fought to have his own sister on the film. Actually, not quite true in that case. He didn't want her because he thought she was too pretty. And he always envisaged Connie as being rather plain and only able to marry good-looking men like Carlo because of who she was. And, and quite plain. Um, yeah, but there's a natural prettiness to Talia Shire, certainly at this mm. time. I'm not saying she's you know drop-dead gorgeous or anything, but he certainly thought she was too pretty for this role. Um, so, I mean, they were going to bring in an action director to sort of beef it all up a bit. He'd get to the end of weeks and he'd have to, he'd end up firing like his first AD and stuff. So they couldn't take over, you know, over a weekend or anything <laughs> like that. Just all sorts of things to try and um, a final cut was fought over terribly. And we'll talk about that as we come to it. Um, James Kahn tells the story on one of the bonus features. There's, there's a documentary made around the time they were filming The Godfather 3. And he said, you know, Marlo, uh, Francis knew who he wanted, he, you know, for the sons. He wanted, you know, and Marlon. He wanted Marlon. He wanted um, he wanted Al. He wanted uh, John Gazelle. And he wanted uh, James Kahn. And, you know, he went out and did screen tests with them, which cost him, as James Kahn said, four corned beef sandwiches. You know, here's your sandwiches <laughs> for the day. And he said the studio after that did hundreds of th thousands of dollars worth of screen tests. And we ended up with the four corned beef the, sandwiches. The four people that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he got his way on everything, but he, he had a nightmare making it. It's relatively low budget, comparative to how it looks anyway. And... Um, that's not obvious, in, but it's obvious in a couple of shots, and, I, and I'll get there. It's just no, no time to redo things and a bit of sort of lazy second unit work and stuff. The film costs six, seven million dollars, something like that. It is worth saying that when people talk about the sort of rebirth of cinema in the 70s, and I think they mean in box, and I mean in box office terms, they frequently point to Jaws. Um, cinema was, had been dropping away in popularity post, post war, frankly. Uh, television. Yeah, TV is the main corporate yeah, for that one. So people didn't go like they used to go for a double feature and all the rest of it. This film, when it uh, became the highest grossing film of all time for a couple of years, I think Jaws beat it, actually. Yeah, well, I, I, I would say Jaws would be like the modern equivalent to the blockbuster. That was like the film. Yes. Probably, probably this is obviously where it stopped. Well, but there was actually, a period if you want to go back to the blockbuster, you have to go back to The Exorcist. Um, but I say this is probably perhaps where it all started. This is this is this is the first film that sort of woke a dormant industry. Let's put it that way, and it was at one time the highest-grossing film of all time, which is amazing when you look at the sort of films that dominate those lists now. Yeah, and I'm not and I'm not looking down my nose at those types of films at all. But the modern equivalent of a Godfather would never sort of. That, that wouldn't reach those dizzy heights today, no, unfortunately. No it, no, it wouldn't. It would, you know, it would kind of do. It some, would take like a Titanic or Avatar or. 
Yeah, this did a, a shade north, south of 300 million world, worldwide, which is massive for the early 70s. Um, and I think that's all I want to say to sort of start us off. What are your experiences with this film? Uh, I'll go first, briefly. Uh, just because I haven't got that much to say, really, because I haven't had much of a, a attachment to uh, the Godfather series. It's always been one of those films that's... Uh, well, I say the series, really, that Godfather Part 2, maybe not so much 3, um, as, like, really high regard, like, the go-to answer is, like, oh, what's your favourite film? Oh, The Godfather. I mean, that's maybe not as so so much as common now, um, admittedly, but especially when growing up, it was, like, uh, that kind of mobster classic that everyone just sort of knee-jerk just said. It was, like, kind of like, oh, okay, it's not my kind of thing. It's it's always been a bit long, and I never really sort of got into it. So I, it's one of those films that I've always appreciated rather than loved. Um... And uh, and it, but it was good. It was it was a good watch. Uh, I had had recently, but I haven't got that much. Well, I probably will have much to say, but it'd be more a case of as we're going through it. But it's a very much. I feel it's maybe a bit too long, uh, a little bit too dry, but but that's my palate. You know, that's that's just going against my palate. But other than that, I don't really have much of an issue with it. But um, I will about I will let Becca. Uh, say a piece. Mm. No, um... <laughs> no, I'll, I'll have more to say as we go along because I'll have like, but yeah, yeah, but yeah you I can't, you I... can't invent some deep history with this film you don't have, obviously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, I'm pretty much the same, really. Um, I watched this film. Um, also, doing like America studies, also uni was in America, and also um, back once again in the UK. Um, module on American cinema um, and films of the seventies. Uh, yeah, no, it's quite interesting. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, I, I was just saying, obviously, before we, we started to come on the show, um, I don't think I've seen this film, or indeed the trilogy, um, since my uni days. So that was well over a decade ago. I've sh- I probably did watch it recently, but I don't remember. So this this rewatch has been a long time coming. Um, again, I think I read I read the book a while, but unfortunately, it has just sat on my shelf. Unfortunately, um, tried to say that three times quickly. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> I shat on myself. <laughs> While selling she shells on the she shells. I didn't want to say. <laughs> Splendid. Um, no, that's what I didn't want to say. But no, um, yeah, so this is quite an interesting interesting watch as well. Um, I, I love the colour palette of it. Um, I love all the costumes. That are, any, anything like sort of any period films. Um, you know, I, we've spoken on this podcast a long time about kind of if you're having to look at like the costumes and, and the sets and things like that, then you're not really paying attention to the story. Um, I was paying attention to all of it, you know, I love the story, I love the characters. Um, Michael's one of those characters, you kind of, there's many sides to him. Like he's, he's you know, sort of um, quite reluctant taking on the role, but by the end of it, obviously he's basically kind of leveled the playing field. Okay, this is, this is who I want to surround me. This is how I want to go forward. You know, Vita's time is over. My rules now. Um, but it's interesting that also it's yeah somebody like Al Pacino, as you say, who is this towering figure today. This is a very early role for him, so it's nice to kind of to see him come into his own, as it were. Um, but no, I, I had a good watch of it recently. Um, it's a bit long, but it's fine. Um, you did get like uh, go, oh shit, all that. They would get this on Godfather Part Two. We go, oh my god, that's all that. You, you forget like the exactly, other exactly. Yeah, you, so. you do kind of forget, don't you? And for like, you kind of hit hit all hit all the beats. Also, like Sicily. Um, or, or the assassination, like where Sunny gets beat up, like the um, oh God, 
they get shot up, you know, by the by the toll booth. Yeah, he gets beaten up by all those bullets. <laughs> well, no, no. <laughs> he gets shot at in his car. But obviously, you know, he gets good kicking in the street as well. He's like, right, you're gonna have both my sister. I'm gonna kick you to death. Um, but just all the kind of famous bits. Also, um, there's one of those films that just worked its way into popular culture. Like we're talking about, you know, what would, what would you say your favorite film was? Like The Godfather. Um, there's a super Family Guy where I think there's all like. They're in some problem, and they're suddenly basically they're drowning essentially. And Peter's oh, like, yeah. "I'm gonna let you know, you know, I never cared for the Godfather. That's it. I'm just gonna end <laughs> this now." Um, one very early on Simpsons episode, um, it's, it's like it's a snow day, and they're basically forced to go into school. And then Bart is just basically pelted with snowballs, and it's that you know it's literally frame for frame. You will see. Also up. next week, we've got a we've got a mafia don that. Um, that sort of in the 1910s and you know yeah i think it's the 1910s that um oh uh sorry robert de niro's young veto basically mm-hmm. supplants and that's parodied in a simpsons episode don finucci yeah yeah we have that definitely as well yeah. we have a yeah. factory and legitimate businessman's club and things like that so that's all just it's a, it's a looming shadow um i don't know if i if i say it earlier if i enjoyed this one i don't this one that you can enjoy um I love all the creative aspects of it. So, as I say, like the costumes and and, and the sets and things like that. And Sicily looks beautiful, beautiful country anyway. Um, I really just to pick up what you said. I mean, I do. Um, I, I I I'm kind of the same thing with you. I mean, I, my mum and dad always used to watch it, and so it's always mm-hmm. been like there. But it's just not something that I've never personally taken to. That's until someone actually bought me the DVD set. The DVD set I actually have now. And I and I sat and watched it. I was like, oh, okay. I, now I kind of get it, but I still never really kind of. It's, I just never like came back to it because I don't know. It's just kind of one of these weird things. Like, I mean, because it's, it's it's quite heavy going, isn't it? It's it's kind of it's not as it's not your lightest yeah. story. I mean, it's, it's it's an epic story definitely, and a very important piece of of seventy cinema and cinema in general. But it's uh, yeah, the same. It's something that my my parents kind of grew up with. Um, they probably you know went to go and see it. Um. And it's just, yeah, it wasn't it? Perhaps if somebody hadn't sort of put it for me, or like the box set that I have, I'm actually borrowing from my mum. So, <laughs> and it's not one sadly that I that I own myself, unfortunately. Um, but that's not to say, you know, I, I don't recognise the series for what it is. Um, I do. I really do appreciate it and appreciate the talent that goes into it. Um, it's, I'm just rambling now. <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's a, I think what it what it does really well is uh, it does handle. The, the characters really well like you really get a sense of who these people are uh, mm. some characters not so much but predominantly the main players it you know it the, the way it just sort of like it, it tells you who like everything about their personalities just like in a really nice cohesive natural way um that's really good and obviously it's much more about like the family aspect so it's very much more about characters interacting with one another and how they feel um but yeah i think just to pick up on what on the, on its general feelings is, I, you never because we're like both all three of us well versed to like say film Twitter. We never really hear much conversation about the Godfather other than like oh it's great or or maybe the characteristics of of certain scenes or um, or Marlon Brando. But bar that, you never get hear much talk about why the Godfather is is really good, which is kind of why I actually looking forward to doing this because I like to hear Dave's perspective on it. It would be the first time actually dissecting it, going through what he really likes about it and be like, and in a way it'd be kind of like, oh, I get it now or I can make more sense because I never really much talk about it. I don't know, maybe that might be one of the reasons why 
I've never taken it to so much just because I haven't heard much chatter about it really. Yeah, this is our this is our parents' generation's Goodfellas, I'd say. Yeah. To to our generation, Goodfellas is what this film probably was to our parents' generation. With me, I mean, it's sort of you've, you've kind of gone and, and done sort of opening thoughts there. So if I just add a couple of bits about my history with it, I'll do my opening thoughts as well. Just a couple of things I forgot to mention. Uh, this film is shot by Gordon Willis. Uh, another massive point of contention on the screen because Coppola was sort of effectively a movie brat. He was that same generation as Brian De Palma, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and uh, uh, you could throw um, Friedkin into that as well. Um, uh, what's the the other one? Oh, the guy who did um, Last Picture Show. De Palma? No, no Last him, Picture Show was... was um, yeah, De Palma's in that group anyway. And in fact, if you ever get a chance to read uh, anything on a company called American Zoetrope, um, take it because it's all about um, Coppola's ambition getting the better of him. Um, he, he lost a lot of money a lot of times through his career. It is a career in some respects. We were talking about Scorsese before we started recording, and that's a potential series down the line just out of conversations we've had tonight about different things. Um, but in some respects, I'd like to cover Coppola the same way. But there's two problems with that. I think all his good stuff's in the 70s. I think he, he basically, this, in the 70s, he did oh, come this. On. Yeah, Jack. The, converse, the conversation, the part two of this, and Apocalypse Now. And then after that, most of his stuff's not that amazing. I mean, Jack's obviously sublime. But, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, uh, that is Robin Williams playing a 10-year-old who ages four times faster. So he's in a 40-year-old body. And it's just the last thing you could imagine this guy doing. He it's also quite did, unlikely, isn't it? It, it almost uh, feels uh, like a Jim Carrey thing, doesn't it? Almost. It does. And I it think maybe uh, he would have probably been in consideration because it's a 1996 film, but I suppose they wanted to cast middle-aged and Carrey wasn't at that point. Maybe if they'd made it 10 years later. I don't know. But um, I suppose the other film he'd be well-known in popular culture for would be um, Peggy Sue Got Married. But even even that film is it lives in the shadow of Back to the Future because it's a time it's a time travel light comedy ish film from the same era, and you know that there there can be only one and it's Back to the Future. Unfortunately, um, he directed uh, he got his start with Roger Corman. He did a film called Dimension Thirteen, so he's another one who got sort of you know grandfathered in by that's the wrong term for it who got um supported and funded by roger corman early on he's also he also did um oh, what's he called fred astaire's last film finian's rainbow he did a he did a he did a, a musical with him in like the very late 60s which they, when they went to process the film they cropped it so they've made a musical with fred astaire and cropped out his feet in most shots and he's a fucking dancer so not a great what's idea the point? what's so, the point Coppola's filmography is far far too um, patchy for me to want to spend weeks doing it whereas Scorsese yeah there, there, there are even even lauded Scorsese films I'm not that fond of but there's there's so much richness and variety in his filmography you know, great. But Co Coppola um, was a movie brat, as I've, I've sort of gone off sub subject there. So he clashed a lot with Gordon Willis because Gordon Willis was a very classical stylist. So Coppola would tell him a shot he'd want it and Gordon would turn to him and say, well, whose perspective is this from? You know, a very basic 
and he's like, well, I don't care. I like this shot. So where Marlon Brando is shot, you get photos, uh, you get uh, shots from above him uh, looking down on the street. Well, he just thought that was a good shot with all the oranges going everywhere. But Gordon Willis was furious at that shot. Um, <laughs> he, wasn't he, also, any of it. he also allowed a degree of improvisation, Coppola, whereas Willis was very much about actors hitting their marks, which is important to a cinematographer because they need to know where to point the fucking camera. Um, so they need to know where actors are going to start. For those of you who don't know, and 90%, 95% of the people listening know this, but when actors are filming a scene, there are literally bits of tape on the floor telling them where to stop when they deliver certain bits of dialogue and so on. And Coppola kind of shat on all that. <laughs> so, so you but, probably well, imagine that Willis was probably secretly hoping, I hope this fucking flops. Quite possibly. I mean, <laughs> and then like, it comes out could, and everyone's they, like, they, they oh my to, God, they, what a genius Coppola is. He's come like, to fucking twats. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, they did, they did come to an accommodation because he shot both sequels and Gordon Willis is in the scenes of, of that documentary for part three and they're having dinner and talking and no, Gordon Willis, they, they made their piece, but it wasn't the easiest thing to, to start off with. My history, uh, but yeah, I, I mentioned Gordon Willis because he shot a lot of Woody Allen films, um, which m- many of them not visually that um, uh, award-winning, but one of them was indeed Manhattan. So, uh, and I think he may have won an Oscar for that. I don't know without looking. But uh, he shot, I'm looking now, he shot The Parallax View, he shot All the President's Men, he shot Clint. That's a film. So he worked with Alan J. Pacula for a while. Um, really, really good films, all of those actually. Um, but yeah, he did some of the the very best looking uh, Woody Allen films. Although having said that, he also did The Money Pit with Tom Hanks. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, my history with the film, um, uh, it was a film my father always talked about a lot. I was came up in conversation with someone I was dating when I was at university and she literally said you haven't seen it oh we've got to go and get it and she literally more or less oh. marched me to the fucking video shop there oh. you know we were like in my room and it was suddenly we're walking down the street to see if we can find a copy of the fucking godfather <laughs> and we, we get in there and they had a copy of part two so oh. I saw part two first which works as a narrative but I'm going to say a lot about two and it, and its benefits, pluses and everything else. Um, but it, I think it helps if you've seen the first one, let's put it that way. But I did follow up that. I was just, I was blown away by the look of it more than anything else. The look and the sound, although never by the soundtrack, it's a waste of money because it's 11, it's 11 slight variations on the same piece of fucking music. It really is uh, with, with a couple of Al Martino songs thrown in. Um, but I so I saw them over the next couple of years and then around my twenty first birthday I got the box set on video. That's how long ago it was. Um but it was the re edited version and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on, probably a bit more next week actually, because there are deleted scenes. Um what they did was re edited it in chronological order. Next week we've got effectively a film that serves as both both a prequel and a sequel to this. So you open with Godfather Part Two all the early stuff, then you get The Godfather, then you get all the sort of modern day, or modern day, the later period uh, bits of that film in afterwards, and then Godfather Part 3 was in the pack as well. Much longer, the the two bits together are about six and a half, seven hours, something like that, because there are deleted scenes put back in. That had all the documentaries I've referred to when I talk about, you know, the four corned beef sandwiches and all the problems with casting. Fell in love with it. Um, 
it took me a very long time to watch them the, the right way round again. They came out on DVD late 2001. Uh, the current versions of, of these films still have all the features from that on, and the commentaries come from that era. So comment, commentaries were recorded on all three films by Coppola, by himself, um, in late 2001. And I just fell in love with them all over again. I've always had a copy of these films. First thought on this film, just to keep it, to keep it a little bit briefer because I'm going on a bit. Um, the the appeal of these films are in two th- two or three things for me. Firstly, the attention to detail, um, and that's only something you know if you have listened to the commentaries. But there's lots of little things in this film that Coppola knows to put in because he grew up in an Italian American family, and he grew up. Well, I mean, he was born in, I think, 1939. So he would remember just that post-war era. So there's little details, even in the cars, in what goes on at the weddings, that he would know about. Um, The sounds of it, again, the soundtrack as a whole is a disappointment, but the actual key sounds of this film are beautiful. But it's the character work as well. If you watch any kind of genre filmmaking, which frequently has good character work of its own, and then come back to this, it's just fascinating Michael has one of the best character arcs of all time, and I consider it one of the greatest robberies of all time that Al Pacino doesn't have an Oscar for this film. Over yeah, and above, surprise, over and above the, we'll talk about how this film did at Academy Awards and stuff a little bit later on. But um, he was he was up. The, the problem is the vote was probably split because three of the actors in this were up for best supporting actor. So James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino were all up for best supporting actor. So. But it's one of the most fascinating character arcs. It's one of the things that people talk about in two, but Michael's character arcs in this film, in my opinion, I don't think where he finishes part two is that far from where he starts part two, in my opinion, but it's all in this film. And um, so I always loved that. And and the other thing is, I think, I think it's probably because I don't have an awful lot of family of my own. I always find depictions of families fascinating because family is something I don't fully understand. So to actually see it portrayed and feel real and feel what it must be like to have siblings and stuff, because I don't. That's quite a dysfunctional um, family, though, isn't it, I would say? It is and it's not. No. Uh, what they do is dysfunctional, but their relationships to each other are all fairly normal. No, definitely. Maybe and, that's why and, I the Simpsons um, so much, even though, because I obviously have parents and the rest of it, but I don't have siblings myself, so it's quite fun to have, like, even though they are very dysfunctional. Yeah. And films, you know, other shows of that nature. So. And I, I went looking for the quote, the quote that was on the DVD box set. It was literally like, or, you know, handwritten on the back or si- signed by him on the back. And, and he said, and I cannot remember the exact quote, but he said something like, I always envisaged the Godfather as the story of a king who had three sons. And to his eldest son, he gave his passion and all the rest of it, meaning, you know. Sounds like Leah, but not quite. You know, to his next son, he gave his sweetness and kind nature, meaning Fredo. And to his youngest, he gave his guile and cunning or something like that. Mm. And, and you actually see that in Michael. He's, he's actually one strand of Vito. He's, he's not sure. as complete as Vito as a, as a, as a mafia boss. Um, I can't criticise anyone's experiences with this, this film, but I, I've never recognised complaints about length, dryness, pacing, anything. And I don't just mean my sex life. Um, <laughs> I wasn't I, like earlier. I, was, I wasn't like complaining that, that you know the film is no, obviously no. it's like it's two and a bit like three hours. We, we, you know, it's just you can really say whatever you I think want it's really interesting. There's film. lots to pick out, definitely. It's just exactly. one of, and as I say, the next part two is no, is even longer for sure. Yeah, part two feels it though. I mean, I like part two, but, it feels... but it's, it's all necessary. It's all if there are any bits that you know, it's obviously there, there are deleted scenes, but it's I, all necessary, and everything I, that you need is there. On I, I, I have a, a deeper criticism coming up as well. So, uh, oh, no. but, but no, it is more of a case of how 
sorry to say, the female characters are portrayed. They aren't as fully rounded. I I would say the same. That's kind of deliberate. One of the things Coppola did, one of the things Coppola did when they were prepping is he got them to behave like a family, but he Mm. got them to behave like a family from the era. So Coppola would, a bit bit like Cubby Broccoli, he would... Perhaps it's people of Italian extraction. Um, he used to cook for the, the, you know, the cast and crew quite a lot, and um, he would have them um, eating together, and they would have, you know, Marlon Brando at the head of the table and all the rest of it, and they started to behave like a family. Some of the, some of the quote unquote sons would like show off to him. Some would badmouth him. Some would joke with him. Um, you had, uh, but he made the women serve. He, he made like Talia would be like serving the food. Well. He just said that's what would have happened in a that family kind of, of that era. I wanted to mimic. I wanted to mimic the way the families behave. You don't have time for for everybody, unfortunately. This is this is Marlon Brando won Best Actor for this. He refused to accept it because he was a bellend. But he um he sent like some fucking actress playing a fucking Native American to pick it up or something. Oh, so it was actually a real Native American. It wasn't a real Native American. It was an actress. No. I believe anyway, but she turned up to complain about the plight of Native Americans on his behalf. He was just a twat. But anyway, right? Um, isn't the fact that she's an actress playing? Isn't that just a bit? All oh, right, that that just comes from. I a bit don't know stupid. how widely you known that is. I think people think it was like you know, it's Little Feather or something. But it, it wasn't. She wasn't a real. Well, she was probably a real Native American from extraction. But you know what I mean. Yeah. But um, the other thing is, you'll never hear. You do hear it in part three, but you never hear the word mafia. Um, mentioned in this film partly because the, the mob started like threatening paramount pictures and stuff like that they shot up albert ruddy's car and was one of the producers on this who won an oscar because uh, it won best picture and obviously best pictures go to the producer um and the deal they did was okay well we're, we're not going to mention we won't mention the word mafia well it wasn't really in the script anyway, so that was an easy thing to gift I don't, there's the mafia are worried about being betrayed badly isn't that the ultimate fucking snowflake? That's the ultimate thing? irony. I know. Um, yeah, I think that's as far as I really need to need to go on sort of background with it. It's a film I've always loved. It's a film that flies by for me. I've never had a problem with the length the length of this film, and I've never. But because there are consistent character arcs working through the film, I think if you had any problem with this film, and and. It, it's the one thing that tells me my father must not have seen it on first run. And the reason I say that is my father had the shortest attention span in the fucking world. And what not a short attention span. He could watch things that were three hours long, but if they weren't instantly awesome, he got pissed off. I remember watching um, last crusade with him. And after like 10 minutes, he was like, Oh, same old story. First one's the best fucking one. And he was, oh. like, he was really a miserable bastard to watch a film with. Actually. I love my dad, but like, and he was funny and he was a good guy. But the, the problem with my dad was if he didn't like something, he wouldn't allow you to enjoy it. And um, The Godfather starts with 25 minutes of just watching people at a wedding. And I know that would have driven my dad nuts if he hadn't already known this film to be a classic that he was supposed to like before he saw it. Um, so that that's the only bit where you may have a problem. It takes it takes a little bit of a while to actually get into it properly. But it's it's all it's all background on the world and there's a ton of detail in it it's a ton of back, background i'll pick up and the the clip that plays on the start of this episode that we're recording here now is from michael and Kay at that wedding and it's just wonderful to, to see uh, again it, it it's something you don't see very often people age and harden and change uh in such a compressed period and and al pacino just essays this 
sort of gentle decline and, and a sort of death of his soul, really. And on that happy note... <laughs> <laughs> With hilarious consequences. And fruit. And lots of scary oranges. Yeah. Oranges always uh, sort of uh, come up at portentous moments, but actually you can you can film theory that to death. It was they just wanted to put some colour in. Simple as that. Yeah, literally. I mean, yeah, there are lots of theories about the oranges in this film, but it's literally. And they're all bollocks. The filmmakers said it's bollocks. It's just to put colour in. Um, Because the film shot through dark. Like Baldwin going, actually, it means this, this, and this. Oh, actually, no, it doesn't, David. It it, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) It really doesn't. Um, Shall we discuss this film sequentially, folks? Yeah, go on then. So we we start at a wedding, don't we? Yeah, this is the wedding of Connie, who is uh, the the godfather, uh, Don Vito Corleone. We get a bit of his background next week. He's an Italian mobster, one of the five families we find out through the film that sort of control the city. That's their code word for effectively Hmm. the mafia, the the, the five families. The five families that run the... Yeah, run New York. Um, We see all the background next week. Which which one do the... um, Do they run the uh, colony, the... uh... Which we, we, we because there's Brooklyn, isn't there? There's Brooklyn, Staten I Island. I don't they, know. They, they each got a district to them. I'm not sure if I've heard of it that way. I suppose that would map to boroughs because there's five. Aren't yeah, there? that's a good question. I don't know. I've never thought about it actually. If I'm if I'm truthful, um, uh, they certainly. Yeah, we'll we'll get onto that because I, I don't think I've got an answer. Is the honest is the honest point? But we'll he's got out. four. He's got four children. He's got. And they are very distinctive characters, and I get what you're saying about the women, and we'll get onto that. But certainly, the boys are very, very distinctive mm. characters, very, very different from each other. You've got Sonny, who's very hot-headed, very mm. passionate, and we see that quite literally early in the film. Um, quite hot-headed, probably, probably sort of number two to to the Don at the at the moment. At the very start of the film, he's the only son in the room. He's got. Michael, who's effectively, well, he's the youngest, but he's got a, he's a, effectively been away at war. So he's, he's signed up to serve in the armed forces. Uh, you've got Fredo, who's a bit of a mess and very weak. Um, and then as an adjunct to that, you've got Tom Hagen. And that's explained to us quite early. Tom Hagen gets, was found on the street by Sonny as a young boy, taken in and raised as a son. But he can never take over the family because he's not of Sicilian extraction. And that's the Robert Duval character. I can see why he was nominated as well. He's terrific in this film. So the film starts with, um, it starts with a, I believe in America. It starts with a, an undertaker. There is a, again, there is a, a an idea that, or a tradition that no Sicilian can turn down a request on his daughter's wedding day. His daughter, Connie, played by Talia Shire from the Rocky films, is marrying Carlo. And uh, the, the few, there's a few things just to point out here. Firstly, we get that he gives everyone an audience because that's the tradition. You 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 take requests on your daughter's wedding day. Um, you literally give them cash. Uh, the, the 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 bride is being given a lot of cash by people. Um, tossing sandwiches to each other. You see them tossing sandwiches to each other. That's, that's that's, that doesn't sound well. like a euphemism, does it? Yeah, it's not a euphemism. <laughs> it's, it's not. A, it's, a nice mayonnaise filling. Um, <laughs> mm, crunchy. Just said, I mean, you'd be it. full. That's a day of... That's Carb City, that, isn't it? <laughs> Bloody hell, sub and a half. Yeah. Try, try catching that in your mouth from 10 feet away. I mean, you'd um, be stuffed, wouldn't you? Literally. That's what I'm showing right now all the time. 
That used yeah. to happen. Sandwich. Uh, he said that happened at weddings he went to. He said they used to call them football weddings because the quarterback tossing the sandwiches. So it was just a thing. Um, it's one of those things where you have to kind of, if, if you're of Sicilian or Italian extraction, it must help. Yeah, he is. He grew up in an Italian family. I don't know if he's Sicilian, but he certainly mm. grew up in an Italian family. That's another thing. They didn't even want to go to Sicily for the filmings of those bits. Just really, you know, they really wanted to half-ass this film mm. and just hope <laughs> the book's popularity would power it through. But um, so he's, he's hearing a story from an undertaker who is saying that his daughter was dating somebody and he brought a friend along at one point and they tried to basically... Oh, no, sorry. He tried it on with her. She kept her honour, as he put it, and then she was basically beaten up by him and a friend and, like, nose smashed, jaw smashed, put in hospital, and they got suspended sentences. And so he's going to the Don to basically say, I want revenge. And the Don listens for a very, very long time. And it's just a very... Sl- and it, again, it's very like the pacing of the film. The camera just slowly reveals. It just slowly pulls back from him because it starts from frame on his face. And uh, the Don gets up and gets a bit pissy with him and just said, well, you're only coming to me because you want a favour. Mm. You know, you haven't let me into your house. You haven't had a cup of coffee. My my wife is god godmother to your um, child. Yeah, basically you've not been a friend. Yeah. Tiny little detail. He's stroking a cat all the way through this. This cat was just wandering through the shot and just Coppola just put him on Brando's lap. So <laughs> in general, he's quite cat. happy as well, the cat. I was thinking, oh, because you always look out for... Like for example, in the, you know, twice when he when Blayfield's got the cat, he's struggling to get away. Yeah, but yeah. Here, the cat seems quite happy. Cat's really happy. Really. Mm-hmm. Loving it. for a Bond I, uh, villain. <laughs> I thought it must have been a trained cat, a session cat, if you session will. Session cats, yes. Um, Body double no, cat. That was just on the set, and that's another thing to point out. Mob bosses normally were a lot more demonstrative, loud, intimidating, and Brando going. So it's a very around... kind of very quiet performance, isn't it? Not quite the very understated, but. Um, yeah. Actually, speak a lot of the words, for example. Mob bosses talking like that in any kind of pop culture now comes from that. Because yeah, that, exactly. That, that's yeah. what it all comes from, basically. Yeah. But it also adds the presence of uh, respect, isn't it? It's uh, you, you kind of get this like kind of lived in um, what's principle of you know of how gangsters actually are they're just a bit that you know they they are about no no you know we're, we're happy to do favors and that but we you know we actually want respect you just come in asking for a favor it's like yeah. well i've seen fuck all of you you know yeah. you, you don't you don't come to my house you don't yeah. invite me to your house um not even for a coffee you don't call me godfather you've never come to me in friendship um and a key point here and something sunny doesn't have is a proportionate response proportionate according to their moral code don vito always goes from the perspective of reason and we'll get that reason through his bloodshot version of it and we'll come to that with michael's story in a little bit about um uh, johnny fontaine we'll come to that in a little while um but he, he doesn't want these people beaten to death he's like give it to clemenza get trusted people we're not animals we're not we don't want to kill anyone um, so he accepts that. We see that that's quite an important story. There's a lot of character work in that with very little. Just mm. that story and his response to it. In the room, uh, Sonny's in the room, which sort of puts him as heir apparent. And Tom Hagen is in the room, his consulary, which is effectively, he's a trained lawyer. He's effectively, an, it's an advisor role, effectively. What else do we see at this wedding? We see um, Luca Brazzi 
that was oh. a that, that was a that was a happy accident. There's this film of him um, struggling to pra- practicing what he's going to say to the Don. They filmed that afterwards because when he went in, the guy wasn't really an actor, and when he went in and did the lines, he kept flubbing them and fucking them up. And in the final film, they're really stiff. So they then filmed him doing that so that it put it into perspective. Like, he's frightened. He's nervous. Mm. And that tells you something, because he's a really big guy anyway. Yeah. He was a professional wrestler, Lenny Montana. But, yeah, but he, he, yeah he's probably just how he is. He's probably, you know, for lack of better words, he's uh, just a big dope, really. But it's kind of, but he always has this... Um, he can, he can tell from Brando that his character kind of, like, has an affectionate for him. Cause anyway, because he's like, well, you know, you're loyal. That's what I respect. That's what I... That's what I like. And he, let, he lets him finish it, finish his thing, and doesn't interrupt him or anything. He just sort of sits there waiting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. At the same point, uh, Michael arrives at the wedding. Um, there's a few things about this scene, and we don't need to cover all of it because it's, it's 25 minutes of the film or so. But there's a few points to notice. Firstly, Michael doesn't look like the rest of the family. I don't mean genetically. I just mean he's in his army uniform. He's turned up with a very sort of waspy woman, Diane, Diane Keaton. Um, uh, who is nothing, certainly not of Italian extraction and not of any sort of mob background. Uh, she's a teacher, I believe, like an elementary stroke primary school teacher. And the other thing is, uh, when the Don eventually does come out to sort of join the wedding, he won't do a photo without Michael. And Michael won't do the photo without Kay. So there's an element of... Um, he doesn't quite belong. He half belongs to that other world, which is dating women like Kay. And also, he would be... that. You get the feeling through the film that he's, he's the Don almost thinks Michael's too good for that life, and he should have gone on and been a senator or something. And we'll get to a scene later, which wasn't written by Coppola or, um, or Mario Puzo. We'll get to later where that, that's actually said. But also, he's his favourite son, I think. You always get the impression Michael's his favourite, even from this scene. The scene that was on the start of this episode is um, Kay's just asking questions. She's like, who's that man? And it's Luca Brazzi. And he tells a story about Luca Brazzi. And uh, Johnny Fontaine uh, arrives at the wedding, who's like a music star, uh, sort of in the style of Frank Sinatra. And it is rumoured this is largely based on Sinatra, because there are a lot of stories about Sinatra and the mob, um, none of which anyone can prove now anyway um and he tells a story about getting johnny out of his contract and it tells you something about the don that he's quite happy to use violence but he 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 proceeds with reason first as he would see it Mm -hmm. so the story he tells Kay is johnny won't wouldn't be let out of a contract as as things were going to happen i think it might have been um I think it might have been to do films or something. He, wouldn't, he wasn't allowed out of his original contract anyway. And the Don actually went along first and offered $10,000 to, to release him. He actually went with a financial offer first. And it's only when he gets bad-mouthed and we see a, effectively a replay of this in a little while that effectively, right, it's then gone out and here it is. And for the insult, he reduces it to like $1,000 and he assures this man that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. And that's the the scene I've put at the start of this episode. And it's electric. It goes on for over a minute. I can't... Mm. I'm always spellbound by that story and the telling of it. And just the very quiet way at the end of it, Michael says, that's my family, Kate. It's not me. It's incredible. Yeah. 
It's it's literally the offer you can't refuse. What else are we? Uh, yeah, we do hear that phrase in in the study, yeah. uh, which yeah, is shot very dark. Times about the film, isn't it? It is. It's said in that study, which is shot very dark. That was a Gordon Willis joke. You cannot turn the lighting up on that. You can't do anything to process the picture. No, it's very atmospheric. It's, a, it's deliberately shot very very dark, and then outside is almost slightly overexposed. But he used uh, aging material by then in terms of cameras and stuff, so it's got this golden look to it. Those aren't filters. They're the fact. No, that it, it does actually look. It looks like the whole thing is like bathed in sepia, but it looks beautiful. What else do we learn? Fredo's drunk. So, again, just adding you know, he's, always drunk, bless him. he's a bit of a waster. He goes over to look at Kay and he kind of like just kind of has his cheesy smile on. Um, <laughs> you've got Sonny. You see his temper because the FBI are there. Mm-hmm. And taking, he's always angry. He trashes the guy camera. They're taking registrations. One of the things you'll notice is, and this is another couple of thing. After the war, there was a steel shortage, or was it an aluminium stroke aluminium shortage? I can't remember what bumpers were supposed to aluminium, be. Aluminium, damn it! They put. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. We've got listeners from everywhere. No, uh, I know. I'm joking. America, <laughs> I'm being facetious. Don't um, worry. But you'll see, they've got wooden bumpers, and that happened after the war. And again, Coppola remembered that, that and put that detail in. And you'll see bottles of things that are homemade, and it's based on his memories. But Sonny goes out, smashes a camera, and um, spits on the warrant. Oh. Um, which I've always found a bit, yeah. All the violence in this film, and it's spitting on the it's warrant. It's spitting, it's it goes, yeah. Yeah. Well, because something um, is quite, um, yeah, it's quite gross, isn't it? Like, I mean, I must say the editing and the violence is something I will come, I will come to comment on near the time. Okay. Um, what else? So we learn about his tempo. We learn, We also learn he's, we, his wife is making signs to her friends that he's got a big dick. <laughs> Next thing we see, he's fucking one of the... Um, bridesmaids now that bridesmaid whose name escapes me is the mother in in universe i mean the character not the actress she's the mother of andy garcia's character vincent from part three in the book she never has vincent she is sonny's mistress but she has sonny's she's a lover of sonny's because sonny is well endowed which is hinted at in this film and it's a real trashy bit of the book you assume the book is really classy and it isn't the book is is a man who's had two previous books fail and thinks let's put a bit of sex in it, right? <laughs> if it's I was going to his version of putting some sex in the film in the book was to have a character with oversized an oversized vagina, right? <laughs> and she's we'll so, put an eighteen rating on this podcast. So um, yeah, because normally we're quite clean. Um, and so she's having sex with Sonny because he's the only man who could satisfy her. And there's a whole subplot in the book where she meets like a plastic surgeon to try to get herself fixed and falls in love with him. And it's just utter trash and has nothing to do with any of the rest of the book. What else do we learn? We see we see Clemenza. Clemenza's getting drunk and dancing and all of that sort of thing. We can we see there are heads of the other families there. Barzini's there. He gets one of his men to rip film out of a camera. We're learning a lot without actually needing to be told very much at all. Yeah, it's more of an introduction of the characters, really, and setting the scene, isn't it, rather than the beginning of the plot. The film actually starts like what, like after after here now, doesn't it? Really, because you have like it does. It takes about what twenty twenty five minutes for this whole thing. I'm guessing. I, th- I probably did look, but I've forgotten. My guess is 25 minutes, something like that. I yeah. might be completely wrong. It might be a bit shorter, a bit longer, but I think it was about 25 minutes. And plot wise. We're not being told a massive amount. 
we're, we're just getting who everybody is and we're learning so it's so much. It's kind of world building really, isn't it? Mm. It's really good world building. And mm, I think no, I think that sort fun. of thing does speak to me. I mean, I, I find it with television shows a lot. I, I loved the first season of Game of Thrones and quickly lost interest afterwards because I was more interested in just like the setting of the scene than I was than what happened in the scene, if you like. And I'm a little bit like that. I do like stories and I do like all that sort of thing, but I like world building. I always have. And I've always loved this wedding, even though very little happens and I can imagine people getting bored by it. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I think when I was younger, I probably was like, was a bit of a oh, when something's going to happen. But now, <laughs> but now as an adult, I can, I appreciate for what it, what it, what it's doing a lot more, you know, I can definitely yeah, appreciate but... it. The, the other bit of character work that comes out of this, although it, it plays as plot, but it really isn't. It just tells you something about, you know, the characters. It is got it's got some relevance to the Vegas stuff a, a bit later on and so on. But um, Johnny Fontaine is, I think, the last person the Don sees. Johnny Fontaine turns up and he turns up to screaming girls and all that, like a real sort of star of the era. And he wants out of a con. He wants a movie role. I think it is. It's not out of a contract mm. this time. It's a, it's a movie role. And the Don grabs him by the lapels and like, you can act like a man! And all this kind of thing. <laughs> which I find funny, because he's a wine. Um, it's the only he time he explodes out the... Uh, uh, like, he, becomes... he does explode yeah, out of that like, chair. Which I love. I want that chair. I want it's that beautiful, chair. isn't it? I just want the desk. It looks amazing. Yeah, Coppola has that. He, he said he did, take the, he did take the chair. He has that on his nap. Yeah. He's a winemaker now, basically. He does make films now, but he, he, he's got like a... He's got a vineyard, basically. A lot of them do go into like wine and wine and beer making. Is Skywalker Ranch effectively a vineyard as well? Mm. Might I think be. So, yeah. I don't know. It might just be where they live. A lot of wines made there, so I don't know. But anyway, so he, he sends he sends Tom Hagen to to L.A. and this is one of the few bits of the film where you can actually see some of its issues um, because when the plane lands, you get you get a bit of like effectively music of that. You get something a bit brassier. Um, now, when they did the film, uh, it was the one bit Bob Evans insisted on leaving in. Eventually, they argued over cuts so much that Coppola said, look, let's play it both ways to test audiences and see which they prefer. And he said, whose decision will it be eventually? And Coppola actually just said to him, it can be yours. He said, but we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll be informed by test screenings and all the rest of it. And of course, they all loved the music. They all loved Nino Rota's music for this film. Whereas it's just not what Bob Evans want at all. So that little bit of music there is a sop to Bob Evans. The other thing is, when you see the two actors in long shots, you see Tom Hagen, but you also see, what's the character called? Waltz? Something like that? Schwaltz, probably, Chris. Schwaltz? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, not Schwaltz. Uh, Jack the, Waltz or something. Right. In the long he's the head of the studio. And in long shots, neither of them are the two actors. They just sent second unit there. And also there's a shot where they go through a door and you can actually see a couple of like early 70s hippies in the background. And it's, it's just shot cheap. They just dispatch second unit there. to the, So basically he goes there to negotiate Johnny's um, to get into this film. And you see that this guy's also a horse owner. Mm. He's got like a, um, what, what are they called? Stables. Yeah, he's got like stables and a prize horse and horse racing and all that kind of thing. One of the deleted scenes, which was unnecessary, I can see why they took it out. There's a hint he's a paedophile as well. There is a there is. It's only hinted. I mean, there's nothing graphic, but at the top of the stairs is a very young, very very young girl, 
and, and stuff like that in one shot. So the, there's a hint that he's got it coming to him, but the film doesn't need it. It's a bit dodgy. Uh, Tom's 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 a lawyer. He's totally kind of, you know, polite reasonable. and reasonable. Yeah, but he he, he respect, and this might be the most famous sequence in the film. He wakes up in the night waltz and finds the horse's head in mm. bed with him. Slight misreading of the book. It was actually down the end of the bed. I think it might even have been almost effectively on the bedpost in the book. But Coppola himself said he just misread it. But it's in the bed with him. And that scream is ridiculous. He does. Well, it, it works better as a reveal, doesn't it? Rather than like... It just wakes up and the first thought, is is this my blood? What's happened? Yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. shit loads of it and it's like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he screams, so that that I think that's character work done, really, in terms of background, because th- this has no ongoing major mm. point to the plot, except Johnny will o- sort of owe a favour a bit later. Um, but again, that's only real hinted at. I suppose the first plot thing is um, the one of the other crime families. I think it's um, well, no, it isn't one of the crime family. Salozzo. I don't, I don't think he's one of the mob bosses. I think he works for one of the mob bosses. Virgil, Virgil Salozzo, the Turk, uh, really wants uh, Vito to sort of get involved in drugs. And Vito doesn't want to get involved in drugs. No, Plot he's like seems... the only one to say that, you know, narcotics will, will be the end of us. Or only one of the five families that says no. Yeah, he declines, basically. He says, no, we're not going to get into it. Why does he say no? Well, not, not no, but he just... Why does he say no? I don't mean. I mean, what's his reasoning? Do either of you remember? I think it's something to do with because um, it's going to split everybody up, isn't it? This is basically it's going like because I mean they're in other. they're in weapons, they're in prostitutes, they're you know they're in all sorts of like dodgy stuff. Drugs isn't that much of a leap. I can unfortunately I can remember when you know when they have the meeting. I can really sadly remember. <laughs> I don't know. It seems to be more like back to principle, really. It's more of like he, yeah. he's just he's just against it personally, but he he decides to. Oh, as long as they don't interfere in my business, I'm good out. I'm good staying out. Thanks. You know, okay. I think I think there's those talk also about like once you allow narcotic narcotic, it actually fucks your system up. Like you, then your your people starts taking it, and then. They come like harder to manage. I, I don't know. I think there's like a. I think it's just one of them. Those it's just, things where it's just best but, not mess with it. it. It certainly isn't. We don't want to kill young kids. It, it wasn't that, was it? It was just this is a bad idea. I, yeah, I think it's. I think yeah. it's. You know, you know how I don't want to say religious, but you know how how you have people have different perspectives and principles, and it's just like yeah. I think that's just. One thing, even though, like, well, it's like, how can you okay. say that because you still murder and whatnot? But I think it, I think it's just more of a case of that. It's like that's just one of the lines we just don't cross, you know? Yeah. So I, I suppose the next thing is he sends Bra- Luca Brazzi. He sends Luca Brazzi to meet with them. Mm. Uh, I think it's Tataglia uh, and Salazzo. And at the garroting here, it does, they always say that they put this fine mist over him to turn his face black, effectively, as he's garroted. Mm. It's a bit grim, isn't it? Um, I don't know how well the black comes through on screen, but he definitely darkens a little bit in pallor as he's oh. strangled. So, again, something's about to go south. You can just feel it. Yeah, there's, there's going to be there's a move, isn't dread, there? There's a dread, isn't there? Yeah. At the same time, uh, do we see anything between this and Vito being shot. It happens all very quickly, doesn't it? 
Uh, it does. The plot, the plot whips along for a three-hour film. It does. It does. <laughs> um, well, it has to move some of you. I've spent like 25 minutes just like doing much. <laughs> I just had yeah. a wedding. Um, I saw some sandwiches. <laughs> Very little fruit, but I'm quite happy to do like a, a sandwich section. I like sandwiches. Um, yeah, it's pretty much like he's gunned down. Is it Fredo who's with him? Yeah, Fredo drops the, his yeah. fumbles his gun. Yeah, the, um, the, 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 the ever so competent bodyguard. Um, yeah, so you can see Fredo is absolutely useless. Vito is buying oranges. Again, Chris, any thoughts on these oranges? <laughs> they look very fruity. I think they look tremendous. <laughs> really good fruit in this. Um, and he's shot. Uh, he's yeah. shot in the street several times. This yeah. is all ordered by sort of that family, you know, mm. and Salazzo and all the rest of it. Um, before that, we get the sleeps with the fishes bit, don't we? Or is that the same time? Just or is it just after we? Oh yeah, he's in the hospital and the family all meet back at the house, don't they? To start yeah. with, and they get a fish basically delivered to the house. Which again, <laughs> if we ever do a fish section, I thought this fish looked quite nice. Dave's fish corner. Dave's fishy corner. <laughs> Dave's fishy fingers. No, no, that wouldn't work. that wouldn't work. That would be an Oh no, there's time and a place for that anyway. Um, yeah, time and a place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, right, okay. This is neither the time nor the place. <laughs> okay, so. So um, we'll just say it for halibut. So you, you see, <laughs> sleeps with the fishes as a phrase now, sort of in popular culture, which is just basically. That's where it comes from. It's them telling him, look, Luca Brazzi's been killed. Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Now, the character work I've always loved here. Now, I, I've, obviously, it's been pointed out to me on commentaries. I think I'd noticed it anyway. Did you notice it? I, I don't think the film hides it, but Michael traumatised by his father being hurt, kind of gets drawn towards the family now. So he goes to the hospital. Yeah, he's no- a bit traumatised, isn't he? So he kind of gets drawn inwards as, as, you know, as opposed to kind of being... He kind of goes the opposite way. It's quite creepily shot, actually. Reminds me of The Exorcist from outside the hospital. But um, they get, they get, mm, yeah, they get to the hospital and it's all long, quiet, echoey corridors, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, like, none almost of it, it like deserted. It's like really... Like eerily, like what the fuck's going on? They should be police on his door. Mm. He's he's a notable figure for, for the wrong reasons, but he's a notable figure. Um, so he goes outside and basically gets now. Who is it? Who is it? Who's with him? It's it's the baker guy, isn't it? The guy who said he baked the cake at the uh, the wedding. That's it. He was a guy who was asking for a favor as well and had baked the cake and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, um, did you notice how calm Michael was? Yeah. The guy can't light his cigarette because his hands are shaking. Oh, and yeah. Mike, Michael not only is able to light his cigarette, but he actually looks at his own hands. I think he's surprised he's calm. Yeah, he's surprised he's like, how calm he is. He's like, right. And then the NYPD captain turns up. Klusky, I think he's called. Yeah. And it, Michael is just banging on about why are there no officers on my father's door and all the rest of it. Yeah, he's like, why is it not guarded? Come on. Klusky's in the pocket of Salazzo and he breaks Michael's jaw. And they actually wired Al Pacino's jaw after this, mm. because for a significant portion of the film, after he's 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 got like he's got like a welt on his face and his jaw doesn't move properly, and that was Coppola again saying that you know he just gets sick of seeing people hit in films and no damage. He said I wanted it to look. Yeah, he has a real shiner pretty much for like three quarters of the film. Yeah, but in the immediate aftermath, he can't move his jaw properly. They've had to wire it shut. No, of course, his jaw's, his jaw's been broken. So, yes, yeah, so you have to wire it shut. So yeah, he proper suf- he probably suffers for his art. 
yeah so where do we go from there well yeah so now basically it's all kicking off because it feels like okay everything's in turmoil because and michael is saying things to his dad like i'm with you now pop yeah um and then yeah and then everything's in discord uh doesn't Sonny find out that his sister's getting beaten up? Yeah, that's another thing. We haven't seen them since the wedding. Um, there are little time jumps in this. Mm. Let's think, I don't really get a feel of the character for the husband beforehand. It comes straight to, like... He's oh, abusive. He's, yeah, he, yeah, he's, like, abusive or, 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 some, or something along those lines. I think it's because he's not in their immediate world. Yeah. And, and, and the, the women wouldn't be working in the family as such. So occasionally, tangentially, through sort of seeing your sister as you would, you start noticing bruising and stuff like that. And is, she's um, really she's really quite battered around the face. It is a bit unwise, though, to sort of start beating up the daughter of a mob boss, though. I always it's, think, like, is that really a good idea? Like, and, and, and I get that he's obviously... It's yeah, but it's impulse. It's temper control. It's impulse control. It's most most crimes are crimes of passion, as they say. You know, no, not not premeditated in any way. Um, well, uh, he's a cheater as well. He's going and seeing other women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, that's a little later on. She takes a call f- mm. on that. We'll, we'll we'll come to that because that that's around sort of what happens with Sonny. Um, Michael is is they're basically talking about they need to retaliate by killing Salazzo mm. and that captain. Um, Marlon Brando's been oh Marlon Brando Don Vito's been very badly hurt. I mean he's been shot, so it's obvious. But the effects of violence are really shown in this film. They they really are. They're, they're not wildly graphic either. It's just like yeah. the guy is debilitated and he's actually never quite the same afterwards. Um, he's treated very differently um, compared to like the violence against women and compared to men. Um, obviously, you know, one about, but I think we'll come to it when we get there as well. I mean, obviously, mm. um, I think it's just kind of. Like for example, um, to like Big's wife, for example, um, you kind of you, you see it from behind. You know, you hear about it because it's in another room. But like all the, yeah. all, the all the male characters who get shot up, they really get shot up. Yeah. In fact, we'll get we'll get. I'll hold it for that scene actually, because I, I, I obviously I've listened to Comet Coppola talking over it. Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, there's, there's a reason for it. Definitely. But she start yeah she start getting beating. So so Sunny again very hot headed goes right after that thing where he gets out of a the car and he's got like a broom handle he throws it in mm. that was that was that was james khan coppola didn't know anything of that he went to one of the sort of guys on the set and said can you get me a broom handle and it's just something to have there to sort of chuck because he was like it's not in the script he said just, just do it for me yeah just do it and, see how it goes yeah and he just he gives carlo quite a beating um there's one air punch that always bothers me yeah, it's always, it's always pulled out as like, like as if they like, completely misses him like it misses by a mile um, but the whole scene works well. I think would you reshoot it because you've got a burst water hydrant and kids playing in the street. It's really quite evocative stuff. Mm. Um, Sonny's a cheat as well, to fair, fair, but he's not a wife beater. And he, the, the thing where he said uh, when when Sonny realizes his, his sister's being beaten, he bites on his hand. And again, Coppola says I'd seen people, I'd seen Italian Americans doing that. Comes from that. It's just like you know, almost it's, like it's trying, trying to break free. F- trying to get him free from the bar really wasn't it it was like so that's it's like yeah. no no not when he bites him on the hand i mean when he finds out when he's in the house with i think his mother oh like when he's angry he's just there like... when he's angry and he just bites on his fist when he realizes yeah. what's going on <coughs> coppola just said he'd seen he'd seen that as a kid yeah. um 
but the thing that comes next is they want to take revenge and they want to they want to Salotso they want to set up a meeting with Salotso and basically on the yeah they the Salotso wants to set up a meeting at a place of their choosing and they're talking about who goes to do this because they Sonny's totally we want to take him out and Michael very calmly says I'll do it mm. and what's and his reasoning a, for it is it just because he just thinks he's the he's the better choice to do it I think he, he's he's seen his father hurt and he's actually said I'm with you now Pop so it is, he's already made his mind up that he will do what's necessary I think he's also it, it, you can't underestimate when he looked at his hands and he's like I can do this I'm, I'm actually calm and I think his argument is it won't be expected they won't yeah. expect me I'm not in the family I, I'm a soldier you know that, or he was a soldier I don't think he actually says I was a soldier but that, that's the gist it is they won't expect they won't be looking for me you can't send Sonny Sonny's known as a hothead. Salotso even says to Don Vito earlier, you can't talk business with him. Mm. So, and uh, that's uh, the phrase bada bing <laughs> comes into popular <laughs> culture because he says, oh, it's business. You're taking it personal because, you know, because some captain broke your jaw. He said, no, you're not going to shoot him from distance. You've got to get right up against him and bada bing, you blow his brains all over your uh, nice Ivy League suit. <laughs> Which again tells us He's college educated, and yeah. the very fact he's brought that up, Sonny probably never was. Mm. So this guy's promised himself, himself, and he's about to go down a path that he won't be able to get out of. Um, we see him practicing shooting with uh, Clemenza, and he's got a gun that doesn't have any; it won't retain fingerprints. They've taped the the hand, the the butt of the gun, and the trigger in a certain way. And he's actually saying, "How long till I can come back?" And it's like, well, at least a year at least a year because there's just going to be an all-out war after this after we take out uh, you know a mob boss's man and they've got somebody in on the inside because they find out where the meeting's going to be they find out where the meeting's going to be yeah but it isn't where they're asked to meet they're asked to meet at jack dempsey's restaurant which is the influence on rocky having a restaurant in the later rocky films because he went there, Sylvester Stallone went to that restaurant as a child, Jack Dempsey being a former world heavyweight boxing champion. So he's picked up outside there, driven a certain distance, heading towards Jersey, and then sort of a quick turn around. Mm. And they, they go to, I think it's the Bronx, they go to a restaurant in the Bronx, and they've planted a handgun there in the cistern of the, the toilets. And I love this scene. This is probably my favourite scene in the film. Yeah. So, now, I did wonder this while watching it. Um... Did Sorito? He kind of says, "Look, I'm kind of like I'm almost like kind of fucked now, so I kind of want peace. I want to make a deal." Think he's telling the truth or things bullshitting him? Um, so I do wonder I don't if, know. Like, if they actually said, "All right then," and um, then they could have avoided the whole thing. <laughs> I think, as a family, they would be weakened if they let a hit, an attempted yeah. hit on their father just go. I don't believe it because he sort of denies it because he's kind of, you know, you think too much of me, kid. Almost like, you know, I'm not responsible. Well, he was and we know he was. Mm. Um, what I love about this is that he's frisked when he gets there because he knows he's going to be frisked. And indeed, McCluskey is there as the sort of chaperone to Salozzo. This was shot on the first week of this film. But Coppola was in fear of his job when he shot this. Um, I can imagine so. Yeah. So... Yeah, and they'd already gone like a day over in the first three days and things like that. So um, I just love this scene. They actually took up the, the current flooring to, to reveal the sort of flooring that had been in 
the restaurant in deco- decades gone by. They, um, but what I love about this is it's just the logic of it. He's, he's frisked. The, the gun has to be hidden in the restaurant because he'll be searched as soon as he's picked up. And they don't know supposedly where it is, but they do know where it is. So they've hidden a the gun there. There's, there's worry as to whether he'll be able to shoot it properly. They'll be worrying if the gun's actually there. And it does actually take Al, Al's character, Michael, a, a moment to locate the gun. So for a moment, mm. you think it's not actually there. I always think, what if someone's in the shitter? It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes ages. And someone's in there, like, vomiting for an hour. But what I really love about it, because they calm down. He's been frisked. So Salozzo, he says, you excuse yourself, you go to the bathroom, you get the gun, you go, you come back, you shoot them both twice in the head, and you drop the gun immediately, which he doesn't quite do. And, and Coppola says... He, he's supposed to sort of like sort of put his hand down and then quietly drop it to make everyone think that he still yeah, has it. Whereas he's, he's got his head up almost by his head, and he's almost mm-hmm. towards the door before he lets it go. And Coppola said that was deliberate. He said, if, the, if I've done my job right, the audience should be like, drop the fucking gun, which was never quite the reaction I had. But yeah... Um, he doesn't. He shoots one in the neck, throat first, which is a really cool scene because of the way Sterling Hayden responds. The actor, he's very like <laughs> in response. But I think the thing I like most about it is that it, it's by a train line, and they slowly intensify the screeching of the train outside. So it's getting tenser and tenser and tenser, and Al Pacino's eyes are darting all over the place, and you can almost feel like his blood pressure rising. Mm. I think it's an incredible sequence. It's one of the best action films I've ever seen. The the noise of the train, I think that's basically what it's representing, like, there's kind of more and more sort of intensity levels kind of screeching. Yeah, as it kind of gets more and more loud, you just think, ah, and it's like the stress levels of the scene, uh, like the noise of the train sort of going, you know, it's it's amazing. It's done so well. Um, It's one of the most tense scenes in cinema. I was literally just like, watching this last night i was just literally on the edge of my seat going Fuck. I, I i can imagine people at cinema like what having that reaction first time around what seeing it it must be like it must have been one of those like, oh my god like on the edge stuff yes yeah, a landmark um, moment mm. but it's also like his is actually beginning of descent into hell so to speak but it's, it's his eyes are going everywhere and you can see the guy thinking you yeah. can see the actor oh god, thinking he's, he's almost method thinking it you know what I mean, and and he's, he's, he's actually thinking it in a sense. Yeah, it it, it is, and it, it it's just like it because it's his last chance. You want him to do it because you don't want him to get hurt, mm-hmm. but there's no way back from this. This is a guy who should go on and be a senator, an all-American hero, fought in the war, the American dream because he's descendants of people who came to the country with nothing. Exactly. Ivy League, Ivy League educated, so from an elite university. He's going to be a mafia boss. And this is his last chance. He's going to be a murderer if he does this. Outside a hospital because he was trying to protect his father is probably one of those sort of minor scandals you can probably explain away. Once he shoots somebody, that's it. It's probably going to be on your hands. It's my favourite scene in the film. It's not the prettiest scene in the film. There's stuff to come that I think's amazing. But if if someone said to me, you know, what's great about The Godfather, I'd probably play to this point and go, I think you've got it by now. It's in one of the Cornetto movies as well, is it? It's one of the little hot fuzz. Is it? I think it is. I just suddenly had it pop in. I just popped into my head, but I can't remember which, unfortunately. Um, I can't place it. I I can't. I think it might be Shaun of the Dead, but I may be wrong. Will will be a fun fact when we come to it. But yeah, some wonderful sound editing on this. Um, Mm, Fantastic. The sound editing. The name Walter Murch is coming to mind, but he may have been the editor on the film. I'm not absolutely sure. 
but yeah, real key scene in the film saved Brando's job, and it saved Pacino's job as well because they weren't sure. They'd only done three days. The studio didn't want him, and and the notes they were getting were like, he's not doing anything. The, 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 it was too smaller performance for the studio, which is hilarious when you watch Al Pacino now, who is yeah. just ridiculously overacts most things he does now. Um, but back in the seventies, he was a different beast. Where, where's this, that come from then? Beat like overacting? Is that from? I don't even know where it started. I mean, you can go back to things it, it, like and just heat, isn't it? Really. More. Yeah, he does it in heat, does it in Scent of Woman, but you can go back as far as something like Unjustice for All. He's a bit shouty in that as well. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think he's a bad actor, but I just think he's just easier to fucking parody now. This is not the same actor. Uh, he has to kind of live up to that kind of being more of a shouty guy now rather than go back to his roots. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, he's, it's a similar, similar, well, similar situation as De Niro, really. It's like, you know, he's he's yeah. had... I was going to say he's had his time, but not that he hasn't had his time. Um, you know, he's, he's made his millions, basically. He's he's a legend, so he can do whatever he wants, you know. Now, it's interesting, because he's got three sons, the Don. Um, and the only one that dies is the only one that stays. Fredo's effectively sent to Las Vegas mm-hmm. to work with Mo Green. We'll get to Mo Green a bit later. And Michael goes to Sicily. Um, four years, as it's it turns hard, out. Yeah, he's in hiding. They don't know he's he's there. The family claim they don't know where he is and all the rest of it when they see Kay a bit later on. Does, does he uh, bugger off her out seeing Kay? Does, does Kay even like, oh, shit? Yeah, they say, I, I think Sonny says to him, I'll get a message to that girl of yours. When and I think the, the time, time when he comes right. back, he's just like, oh, how long have you been back? He says, what, a year? He's been back a year mm. and he's gone for like a few years as well. So there are a few time jumps in it. The other thing, of course, is in just a little while, like um, we see Connie's pregnant and heavily pregnant and then a little bit later on towards the end of the film they're baptising the second child and things like that so there are a few little time jumps um, so yeah it just opens it just erupts and I think you see newspaper headlines and things like that so just basically open mob warfare um, and we sort of intercut between that Michael kind of wandering around the Sicilian countryside with a couple of sort of minders and um, bits and pieces of sort of Sonny with Carlo. Because I can't remember what order it happens in, but I think we probably need to talk a little bit about Sicily first. Mm. So This is one of the things that I kind of... I won't say, say take issue with, but what I might point... I think maybe the book probably does this better, because you can sort of spend a lot of time on the book because I think also the film has a bit of pacing problems with time jumps uh, so that, that that's one aspect of it especially in this, this section but the whole Sicily wife bit just felt like okay I, it just felt like yeah you're just set up to be killed and, it, and the whole and the whole romance it is kind of like uh, Michael just sort of sees, goes, "Oh, you look nice. Yes, let's get married," and just almost like forgetting about the. Previous... It does move along very quickly to from all of a sudden going, "Oh, there's yeah, you know, and her father and going, appreciate... there's nobody like that in the gentle, you know, to all of a sudden, oh, they're and married, I, and which I, is I fine." I appreciate the element of time and also like actual real life. It's not always, it's not probably all like this anyway. 
But I think as an actual moving narrative as a film, I just I felt that was a little bit like there's a hardening that we need to see. That we need to see, there's a hardening of Michael through all of this. It is. I was going to say that, that's and pretty of course, much what, what the, it means. The murder it of his, it forced, his, it forced wife, his hand really to come back to America because don't it, forget, you know, it not, don't forget at the end of the film he kills like all the other mob bosses. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think he ever quite knows who ordered the hit on Antonia, and after that he's like all bets are off. Yeah, he's literally just going to slaughter everybody. Because Antonia is cast deliberately young. In the book, she's 16, which is pushing it. Bloody hell. The, the actress is only about 19 here. Um, I, I like her jeans. <laughs> well, she's, she's, she's not very old. But um, I, there is some... So, yeah, I think that's deliberately, though, that she, you know, she's meant to be like wide eyed and young. And when she's killed, it's that yeah, much more senseless. But I had a. Why, you know, why the scene kind of, why it has to be. I mean, it's it's beautiful to see. And it's kind of nice to go back to front of. It's gorgeous. You know, Corleone yeah. roots, as it were. Um, likewise, I apologise if I mispronounce it. Corleone, Corleone. Patina, patina. It's, it's, um, it's pronounced both ways in the films. Uh, uh, canoli, canoli, canoli. Yeah. That's <laughs> Um, but no, it's all good. Um, but yeah, no, I get why it has to happen, but definitely. But I, you know, just basically serves to kind of like force his hand. It's like, okay, there's. We missed the Kenobi line. Now. So you have to kind of, you know, force his hand to get back to America and see you to what's going on. Yeah, there's a deleted scene around that I'll talk about next week. Um, but we've got. Uh, we did miss that Kenobi scene, actually, because when, when Vito's shot and Fredo drops the gun and all that. Oh, yeah, leave what, the gun, take the cannoli. One of the guys supposed to be looking out for him that day had rung in sick, and it's because he knew what was going to happen. So um, Clemenza picks him up, drives him out into sort of slightly more rural part of New York and shoots him in the back of the I car. I've done it. Well, in fact, he has him killed in the back of the car while he's off having a piss. It's, but, quite, um, uh, it's quite brutal. <laughs> it's just, yeah, leave the gun, take the cannoli, which was an improvised line, I do believe. Uh, it's gone down then, you know, it's immortal. Yeah, we'll talk about Clemenza next week as well because he's not in next week's film, and there's, there's sort of a reason why. We'll come, we'll come to that. Um, I had a stepfather who was from the deep, fairly deep south of, of Italy, and he did say that this sort of ability to get you couldn't get near any girls, put it that way, full stop. So the, this overprotective father of Apollonia kind of rings true from what i'm what i've heard you know they're good good catholic girls and we don't let boys anywhere near them no i think that's, just, that's the thing we're sort of um just like my well mum was supposedly catholic and her mum's catholic as well and i think she was like very protective of her daughter <laughs> so yeah so it was was it mostly not to say it was mostly driven by his uh, wish to get his end away but there was like a general sort of like oh like a, a romance of like or like I left my life behind now, so I have to start a new one here. There is that as well. The, the, yeah. the, the, what's the point of the romance? Well, several things: the hardening of the character when she's killed, the all bets are off with the other mob families, the um, uh, sort of need to get him back to America, mm-hmm. so it gets too dangerous there. But there's quite clearly the fact as well that it, it's him accepting he may never be able to go home, so yeah, he, 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 he needs to, to make a life I, there. I guess there was like a feeling of. What, uh, not saying it would have happened, but ideologically, we take K there, and K is the one that's murdered in the car. I just, you know, obviously that affects the other, the rest of the films. Mm. Um, and I, and I don't know um, what role K plays in, in, in the future. So I, 
I don't know. And I'm, and I'm, have you not seen the sequels yet? I have, but I can't really remember, can't remember too, too, okay. too much about. So I'll we'll get okay. to that, obviously. But okay. like, quite, it'll be a long a rewatch, long in, in the making. Yeah, just just going off it, just she just going off this as as a first watch on pretty much, uh, and seeing it as a film in itself without any attachment to the books because it's actually trapped by what the book dictates as well. Um, it was it was just my natural feeling of like, well, that will make more sense because he's literally bought this completely innocent girl, who is supposed to be is almost like linked to a life outside of the mob, and that's. But that, that's meant to add weight to his... I mean, remember, at the point where he finds out his father's been shot, they're, they're shopping at, like, Macy's or something. They're, I can't remember where it is. They're quite near Radio City Music Hall. I can't remember the layout of Manhattan. I don't know if I knew so. was represented in this film. Obviously, it has a very violent gangland culture. But um, I just love, like, New York as a city. And it's how it's, it's shot really well. It's shot even better next really week. Way. All the period stuff looks amazing next mm, week. Stunning. But they, they, um, so he, he, he walks across the street to a phone box to call home. That phone box they had to put there, there isn't one there. There isn't a phone box there, no. Fun fact, folks. There never was one there, apparently. Um, But he's with Kay, and he's Christmas shopping, and they're smiling, and they're happy. You don't see him smile a lot after the first No, he's he's, he's quite serious. The whole point of meeting Kay is that his decision is a profound one. We get the get, we you know, we feel this is probably the woman he's going to end up with, and he just has to drop her without even saying goodbye. So it's to add profundity to the decision. If you take her with you, it's not as big. Basically, take that woman you love and give go and live somewhere warm and nice. Yeah, what a mm. fucking... Oh, that's a hardship. So I can defend most of these decisions. Is it a little... I think it's actually a little rushed, if anything. Um, but the music... Maybe, the, maybe it. The, the music's at its best uh, during that whole courtship. Because what happens is they see this woman. Michael is immediately kind of like... Like like happens to a gentleman occasionally, we just go a bit open mouthed and forget to move our facial muscles and stuff. And then they head off to a cafe. Uh, one of the guys, and the, the the big clue is Fabrizio, one of the characters, is constantly talking about America. Um, and there's relevance to that, which I'll talk about again. Probably he loves it, doesn't he? Probably next week because that makes him easier to bribe because he wants to get to America. He wants to go. Yeah, he wants a club yeah. game or um... yeah. Yeah. So I call it all these all these actors' names. Yeah, and Clark Gable's the one Becca knows. Here's the other one. Um... But anyway, they go to this l- l- little cafe and they're going on about this beautiful girl they'd seen and how their friend there had you know been hit by the thunderbolt and she had a purple ribbon in her hair and immediately the bloke goes ape shit because it's his daughter. <laughs> There's nobody like that in the. <laughs> no, nobody like that ever. The original book, I think it's in the book anyway, but it certainly was in the script that um, Al was oh, Michael Al Pacino was about was going to address them in Sicilian. But Al Pacino could not speak that language and struggled to master it to a level that was good enough for that scene, which is why we go to him speaking in English and being translated. But I like that because it gives him a grandeur. This is this is the future mob boss. Mm. This is it the is future indeed, king. Yeah. This is the future king, if you like. So sitting there whilst his minions translate him, um, he, he sort of kind of admits who he is, or at least, yeah, he says who he is doesn't say what he is but he said you know he just says a lot of people would pay for that information and he's allowed to sort of quarter very slowly in that he's invited to like family meals where they're sat down the opposite end of the table from each other and then eventually they progress to like walking as a group and then he's out front with her but the family is still there and that godfather love theme plays over it again one of the most beautiful scenes in the film yeah it looks looks stunning i always get a little sense of majesties though a little bit 
In what way? Uh, with the wedding and things like that, and, and, and just almost like the, the visuals yeah. always had a little bit of a. I, I always, you know, not not entirely, but it just has this little sort of. It is meant to look yeah. kind of more romantic, isn't it? As compared to all the, the violence and the bloodshed of, of the city. Mm. Um, yeah, because it has kind of like a sort of sepia tone, or. Um, it's a beautiful little village. Like, like, very well. scented spectacles, isn't it? It's kind of, you know, yelling for, for like the motherland, as it were. Yeah. Um, Shot beautifully, go, 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 sounds go. beautiful. As I say, I, I always thought of it as one of my favourite scores. Then I listened to the score, and there's so little variation in it. Actually, but the main, th- the main theme's actually beautiful. Yeah. You've got um, to... So he marries her, you know. and then <laughs> sees her tits. <laughs> I may have missed the key point of this, <laughs> of, this part of the plot. Ah. Boobs. Then the sexy music starts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Godfather theme, but played played with sax. <laughs> so, um, so he's now married he's now married to Apollonia she's called um, now I think it was around the time of the marriage uh, we see Connie we, we do keep cutting back to home hmm. and we see this scene that was going to be I nearly laughed earlier and I wasn't laughing at women being beaten up I was laughing at the fact that we talked about this scene and they were going to bring in an action director and I'm just imagining this scene, if directed by Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> Slow uh, motion. Connie is at home, heavily pregnant, and she takes a phone call from basically a female voice asking for Carlo, and saying she can't make it tonight. And you gather it's not the first time, because it's another one of those mm-hmm. floozies. Um, and she starts basically smashing the place up a bit. Kind of half out. <laughs> just a bit. That's a bit of an understatement. Well, she's just breaking crockery and th- throwing things at it. Down, she? I know. And then he uh, he make, tries to make her clean it up and starts hitting her with his belt. Uh, kind of around the backside, I'm assuming the actress is padded there. And then eventually she escapes to the bathroom and he fo- he's calling her a guinea brat and all sorts. He eventually mm. follows her into the bathroom. He, he kicks the door open. Um, and then, and then we kind hear of hear the, about the rest of it from behind the door, don't we? And yeah. can we see like a glimpse of it in the reflection in the mirror? And it's just, I'm not sure if you do. I, I did look for whether I could see anything, and I couldn't. A little bit, and then obviously the door shuts. Yes. Okay. It's, it's it's a bit of a it's a contrast, isn't it, between obviously seeing, you know, the guy who's obviously doing like kicked to death, and then they're being shot up, and like the violence towards the bathroom them is, is, is more graphic. If it had been Michael Bay, obviously. Yeah, it would have done. If it was Michael Bay, it would have gone bang. <laughs> I think Hollywood's normally like that now. Like generally speaking, they tend to be okay with showing you people get shot up and graphic in that nature, but. Anything they tend to women, kind of like hold back like, against oh. domestic abuses is usually rare when you see it full on. It, it does, it's, it's, I don't it's, think it's, it happens a lot. I just think it's a real contrast. I think that's quite interesting. Obviously, like this film, you know, obviously to go through the censors hit quite a few hurdles. Um, and it has, you know, like oh, we haven't talked about the horse's head yet. Yeah, um, yeah we have. And, you know, it's just like lots, lots of other kind of shocking moments that you have in this film. But. You know, so you can show you like a, a severed horse's head. But yet again, real you know, horse's you head. See. They got it from a dog food factory. <laughs> I know, but it's just like, oh my god. Nice. Just the way, anyway, to all dog, dog owners there, obviously, don't feed your animal horse meat. Well, you, you're going to feed your dog's <laughs> dog food. So if there's horse in it, <laughs> you have food. Yeah, more. just say nay, folks. Um, I, say just say nay. Dog owners, just say nay. Well done, Chris. <laughs> yeah, and no, I always think. Domestic abuse is always like toned down usually in, in films, uh, especially in, in Hollywood. 
particularly. Um, we, but, the, but it's obviously okay with violence, with uh, with actual action violence, or like with things like guns or or stuff with guy guy on guy violence, like you know, just boxing or fist fighting and things like that. Uh, but I think domestic abuse against women is kind of rare because I think it's almost like taboo because it's I, I, I don't know I've always literally goes on behind closed doors yeah I'm not saying it should be but I just think it's, it's just a stark contrast for me for example uh, you know just it's something that I sort of picked up on um yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not complaining you know I, I don't think oh we should see it in all its glory no it's just something that stands out to me as a bit of a contrast that's all it just seems like seems like a line drawn I think usually mm. it when it when it is done it's rare and it's done to be to you know to show how horrible it is. Yeah, usually. I think there's a a sense of the mismatch as well. When a a man, particularly a vibrant young man like Carlos, Carlo, beats like a fairly slim, heavily pregnant woman, that's Mm -hmm. a very one-sided proposition. Yeah. So obviously two men having a fight, it's normally a little bit more balanced. So it would just come off as so incredibly unnecessary i think yeah um you kind of there's more impetus for that yeah absolutely um but i i remind you the the director is the sister the brother of this actress oh of course yeah and i think yeah and he actually pauses while he's quite difficult to film then it's difficult for him to commentate on because when he's talking about it he gets to a point and he just he just pauses for a minute and seems Mm. to lose what he's trying to say and then you hear him say I'm sorry, it's really hard to watch my sister being treated like that. Yeah, no, definitely. I can't remember his exact words, but that's the gist of it. Mm, uh, So I think remember that too. Mm, Um, I definitely. I just think it just stood out to me. That's all. Whatever whatever the conventions, there's also the fact that yeah, you got the family aspect to it as well. It's also what he. he, I don't think he wants to direct it too graphically, to be quite honest. No. So. I think that that's that's a key point, but obviously this is all a little bit of a ruse, because the next thing we get kind of a we get kind of a, a screaming phone call to to mother who stood right by Sonny, and he eventually Maybe. yeah he kind of storms out of the house doesn't he because it's happened right. again and he's been he did warn Carla when he beat him in the street he was like you know if that ever happens again so my thing. sister I'll kill you yeah and. Uh, so he dry he jumps in the car. They all seem to try and stop him, and Tom Hagen basically says, "Follow, follow him." And he drives to wherever they need to go. They need to go through a toll booth at one point. This is another and classic it, scene. Yeah, and he gives full credit here to uh, Arthur Penn, who was offered this film. But Arthur Penn directed Bonnie and Clyde. If you've seen how that en- that film ends, that's very much a Bonnie that, and Clyde moment, isn't it? That's what he's going for. Yeah, that's what he's going for here. Um, I always remember James Khan saying, "He said people used to say to me, how many takes did you do?'" And he just said, one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's amazing. Because he said, he said Francis was talking to him while they were sort of rigging him up and stuff. And he said something like, I've never put this many squibs on an actor. And no. James Khan said, you're telling me that now? T- yeah. <laughs> I cannot. All the squibs. I, I'm not allowed to fuck this up. Because he's got a mimic being shot dozens of times. So they've got mm. all these scripts, which are little blood packs that kind of explode like you've been shot. Yeah, and it, does, covered, it does actually look... I, can't, I actually winced watching it. I was like, oh, I have to look away. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've seen it before, but it's just like, ooh. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. it's very violent. It is one of those things because you're like, oh, I'm not sunny now. Like I know, you just think, oh. Yeah, it is. I, I even though he's probably not like 
give you much reason to like him particularly, but you do kind of like him because he is. Because um, out, out out of the family, he's, he's probably the the one who is more strong willed, a bit more aggressive. You feel like the family, especially like the brothers, need him, need him like around to kind of to be like the to be. To be that presence, you know. Well, he's he's the protector. he's the only one still in New York. He's de facto mm. running the family. Uh, the Don knows he can assume power, and it does it does speak to me a little bit that the Don weakens faster after Michael gets home. Now, again, there's some time jumps, so we can't judge exactly, but I do wonder that he almost hangs on for him to get home, as in like Sonny can't run this family. He doesn't quite have the rounded character, he's too aggressive. Mm. Um, and he will constantly be getting into battles with other bosses and, and all the rest of it if you leave it to him. Michael Michael is much colder-blooded, full stop. But in the absence of Michael, Fredo's not up to it and he's not there anyway. So it's obviously going to be Sonny. So Sonny's running the family. So they've, they've basically got the current de facto mob boss. Yeah, he's yeah. forced into a position then, really, isn't he? Unfortunately, I mean, the, the Don is in charge, but again, like I say, he's weakening day to day. His son's do or his son is doing more. Yeah, where he's kind of like reluctant to begin with, he's kind of like, right, okay, I've got to take this on. I don't think Sonny's ever reluctant. Son, oh no, Sonny, not, no, not Sonny. I'm um, sorry, Sonny, I mean, would, Sonny would happily be. The no, yeah, yeah, I think well, the reason that Sonny, you know, is good advice not to just because he had so much of a temper, he'd rather give it to Michael. Again, I, I don't, I, I don't think Sonny, as we ever see Sonny's view on that. I just think no. they respect their father enough to go along with what he says. Yeah, it's not that Sonny, right? Sonny doesn't recognise those deficits in his character. His father does. Mm, no, exactly. But anyway, yeah, Sonny's like blown smithereens, essentially, like completely turned to Swiss, Swiss cheese. Yeah, <laughs> it's full no. of scene. They, when they shot the scene, we see the scene of uh, Robert Duvall, Tom Hagen telling Don Vito who still looks very weak. He's not long out of hospital. Um, when they brought Marlon Brando, when they filmed that scene of him being carried up the stairs when he's brought home from hospital, he put like a couple of hundred pound weights under his oh <laughs> under his stretcher as a, as a practical joke. Because they were like... <laughs> that's so, a workout. Yeah. <laughs> that's a so workout. When you see them struggling, they're actually struggling for real. I, I, don't think, I don't think Marlon Brando ever did a single scene in his career where he wasn't like fucking around or doing something. No, he, he was known that, to be in a bit of a... That did, did strike me as fairly funny, to be fair. Just because they go to carry him up and suddenly it's... Like, <laughs> like right, I'm going to make you guys work for it. Agonisingly difficult. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, so he's blown to pieces and, of course, news reaches Michael. <laughs> Uh, Michael is told by, I forget what the Don's called, but a local guy we see, mm. and he's told it's not safe for you here. They've got this like fairly, well, I say little, it's not a bad size at all, but they've got this villa. Uh, they've still got the suit, two same guards uh, looking after them, and he said, I want to move you to, I think it's Palermo or something. He wants to move him in the morning, basically. It's not safe for you here now. Mm. I'm not quite sure what makes them decide that. That at that point it's not safe for them because there's been periodic hostility since he left. But we take that, and of course the next morning he's dressing. A couple of things we see. Uh, we see him, we have seen him teaching Antonia to drive, which is funny because Al Pacino couldn't drive at this point in his life. But um, yeah, he's teaching her to drink drive. as well. Round the, round the courtyard. And yeah, 
was it Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, Thursday, Wednesday, that's it, she gets that's those two around the wrong way, and then Sunday and Saturday, yeah, that's yeah, so she wants to drive the car to impress him, and for Fabrizio, we've seen Fabrizio say to him, are you driving, boss? Is Antonia coming with you? And he said, yes, I'm driving. Antonia's not coming with me. So he's like, great. And what he knows, of course, is there's a bomb in that car. He's probably set it up or at least enabled it to be set up. Mm. And, um, of course, Antonia jumps in to surprise him. She wants to drive over to him. And, of course, he turns around, sees Fabrizio, says, where are you going? Fabrizio sees Antonia's in the car, sees what's about to happen, immediately kind of... It yeah. kind of skulks um, off, and it, we see Michael clue in, turn and just yell, Antonia, no, as she turns the key. And he's actually blown backwards into the hedge, isn't he? Mm. And the car is wrecked. They really worked on getting that looking right. So, of course, she's now been, she's now been killed. She's with the fishes, or... Well, not technically, yeah. but yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, do you go basically straight back to... Uh, Michael's goes straight back to... Um... America, really, doesn't it? But... We go forward a year, I think, because mm. um, we've uh, uh, in in between we've seen Kay visit the compound, mm. and you can call it a compound because it's behind big, you know, fences and all that kind of thing. And she's basically got a letter for Michael, and and Tom Hagen has said, as a lawyer, I can tell you if I take that, a court could yeah. evidence. I, I could say I've got evidence of his whereabouts. Always uh, a lawyer. <laughs> be, be, be patient and all that kind of thing. Um, she's with some children, which again, I think she's like an elementary stroke mm. primary school teacher. Uh, he, she sees him on a street corner. I think that was a reshoot. I think they redid it because I, I know Coppola was, I think he said Al had put on a little bit of weight and also they, they, he kind of bemoaned the choice of hat he put on. It was a bit pork pie. It is but, a um, bit pork pie hat. Yeah, I must say. Yeah. I was like, hmm. But, um, Sartorial choices. Yeah. Vito, in the interim, Vito has moved to sort of try to stop everything. So he meets with the heads of the fine families because the scene I was started talking about and got myself distracted because I was talking about uh, Vito looking unwell is Tom Hagen has to tell him that Tom wants a drink first and he's going to come up and tell him. Yeah, he's just kind of strengthened himself, hasn't he? Yeah. They did three takes of that. Uh, Robert Duval only ever does two or three takes normally. That's the type of actor he is. Um, and on a whim, Coppola said, can we try a fourth? And his voice cracked on the fourth one. So it's absolutely perfect. And Deval just says, I didn't, I don't know where that came from. Um, he just says that Sonny's dead. They shot him on the causeway and his voice cracks on that. Um, and he just says, I want no acts of violence. I want no acts of revenge. Arrange a meeting with the families. This stops now. They've, they've both lost sons. Mm. Or a couple of them have lost sons. And he withdraws his opposition to, to drugs basically and that allows michael to return home that's the point so so he basically sort of says i don't want to do it but i'll i'll let you guys do it yeah he withdraws the opposition basically they don't need to attack the family now because he's not stopping their revenue stream it is it must work on some basically um you it must be fairly it has to be unanimous presumably that's what caused him to be shot earlier in the film. He, he said no to drugs. Of course, that broke Salazzo's, you know, um, revenue stream. Um, once they officially end hostilities, Michael can come home and be safe. Um, and he basically says, you know, if anything happens to him, sort of thing. Uh, we go forward, as I say, a year because he's been home a year by the time he sees Kay. Um, 
and she's a bit concerned, obviously, with what he now does. And he he tells her, the, the, like, my father's way of doing things is ending, will be legitimate within five years. Um, and they do marry and have a couple of children. So we cover three or four years, probably, in a fairly short period. Um, and again, his father is now getting very, very weak. Michael now takes the family reins whilst he's still alive. Whilst he's still alive, he, he puts... Because uh, I know at one point, I think it's in this film, that he, he basically sacks Tom. And Yeah, it, it, there's a there's a bit of a move to like Vegas. He decides to go to Vegas, doesn't he? And he kind of like... Yeah, he decides to uproot. He, so, says, um... he kind of brings Tom with him. He, he sacks Tom from his position because, no, I'd rather you with me. You're not a wartime consulary, he says. Yeah. But he's still, but he's still, like, he's still well, family. He's still family, and he's still a family lawyer. Hmm. Um, and he just doesn't want Tom in, involved. They go to Las Vegas because his brother's there with Mo Green. Um, is it Lake Tahoe they go to? Lake Tahoe's where they live. You see that in part so, two. Yeah. They go to Las it's Vegas. Like, so I've been there many years ago. And I was like, now, the opening scene of two is very much a sort of companion piece to the wedding at the start of this film, and it's on Lake Tahoe. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, the actual... No, the casinos are um, the casinos are, are in Vegas. Obviously Vegas, yeah. Obviously, um, It's very different now. Yeah, totally. That's all, you know, that's all stock footage and stuff. That all changes um, every time, so... Yeah, um, so they they basically want to buy out Mo Green. They want to get out of the city. They want to get out there. I, th- I don't know if this is part of him trying to go legitimate. That he just said, "Well, we'll get into gaming out in Vegas or something." I don't know. Yeah, because that's but, the same uh, to go legit within like yeah, was it five years or something? Yeah, the whole point as well, of course, is they they Johnny Fontaine owes, owes them um, favors and stuff, so they can get like the world famous Johnny Fontaine to come and do sort of seasons at their casino and residencies and stuff like that. Yeah. So there is that. Um, Fredo has lost the plot. He's like screwing around like it's going out of fashion. Yeah, and he's getting... Poor Fredo. He's pretty much getting bossed around by Mo. He slaps him. Yeah. Uh, I love that. He said, Michael, he was banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. All right, fair enough. (laughs) Uh, Mo Green's quite aggressive as well. Do you know who I am? I'm Mo Green. You don't buy me out. I buy you out. Hmm. And all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and Michael's kind of cool and just sort of like, no, this is this this is going to happen. Or the negotiation doesn't go anywhere, but it's kind of go okay. But he quietly tells uh, Fredo, um, don't, respect, "Don't disrespect." We're me. heading towards the end of the film now. Mo Green is another um, uh, block that needs to be taken out of the way because mm-hmm. he won't he won't play ball with them, and they want to move Lock, Stock, and Barrel to Las Vegas. Um, and they want that. They want those casinos. So, um, or because he's got a stake in the family casinos, anyway. Put it that way. So we're coming into the final act now. We get to the mid fifties. Vito dies. Uh, part two of Chris's fruity, fruity corner. corner. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about this scene, Chris. Where your fruity corner really comes into its own. Well, he's basically playing with his uh, grandson, and um, he has a heart attack while a bit piece of fruit in his mouth. He's got a bit of orange peel in his mouth. That's some, that was improvised because the kid didn't want to play. So um, he was scared for real. Bless Mar- him. Marlon Brando says, "This is what I do with my kids," and he he did that. Um, they're they're basically putting I don't know if they're feeding or putting some kind of uh, bug spray type stuff on the, the vines. They're 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 you know the the, the grapes. 
yeah, he kills over. That's his son Anthony, who, who's uh, we. He's the first thing we see present day, if you like, or the modern era in the second film. Um, and he's also, it's funny because when you first see him in the second film, he's he's be, he's at communion or something, and then in the third film, he's actually training to be like a priest or something. I think, if I remember it correctly, but we'll get there. So the Don is dead. Uh, he was weakening. The scene that was before that, where they were talking about, he does say about, I never wanted this for you, Michael. I wanted you to be like a senator, senator, you know, Corleone or whatever. Um, that scene was written by Robert Town. Robert Town wrote the, um, wrote Chinatown. Of course he did. Yes. Yeah, that was and, written by. That uh, and also the classic Mission Impossible too. Oh yeah, sure we'll, randomly. I'm sure we'll cover at some point. I think we'll do Mission Impossible we'll, somewhere we'll, down the line. We will. I dread doing two though. I can barely get through that film. Two is going to be a bit of a mish. Oh, but the rest of it is, is Mission Impossible. Impossible. It really will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really looking forward to the new one, though. It looks really good. Um, it looks amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, if my TV self-destructs during that film, I don't think I'll mind. <laughs> um, to be fair, it's the only one I don't like. So um, we'll see. But yeah, Mission Impossible will, will be down the line at some point. Yeah, Robert Town wrote that scene. He just said we, we hadn't had enough of father and son together. And just and he says, you know, I'm drinking more. And he just, he's weakening. You know, he's, he's you know, and so on. Around the time he dies, Connie asks, or Kay reports to Michael, that Connie wants him to be godfather to her new child, which is presumably wink, her wink. second child. Wink, wink. Yeah, wants to be godfather. Oh, I see what you mean, sorry. I don't that, wink, well, wink, say no more. The baby was expertly played in by <laughs> Sophia Coppola. Yeah, Bubba. Yeah. That's a... Yeah, best actor she does in the series. Um, yeah, fun fact. So, but yeah, before we get to that, um, Vito had, had said to him, uh, they also wrote that scene in, uh, Robert Town wrote it because they couldn't get the scene right. So they just said, well, you, knew, you knew Robert Town, can you have a crack at it? One of the things he says is that, he said, it's the person who comes to you. You're st- your life is still going to be under threat. The person who comes to you, because I haven't made peace with Barzini. Um, we see Barzini at the wedding very early in the film. Um, Barzini um, will try to assassinate Michael, and he said it's the person who comes to, to to try to set up that meeting and guarantee your safety. That is the one that you will um, need to you you will realise is actually the mole. And um, so they go in there at the Don's funeral. So yeah, it, it's uh, Tessio that sort of comes over to see him. Did you did you notice? Um, in and around these people was um, remember Rocky's Rocky's boss, the Lone Shark, mm-hmm. Joe Spinell. Yeah, he's, he, That's he's the one. He's one of the guys. Yeah, he's, he's there familiar. when Carlos killed. Yeah, it's just I only I've only noticed it on this viewing. I don't think I've ever seen that before. But yeah, Joe Spinell. This 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 was kind of his break actually. So well, there's uh, a couple of he was Rocky someone Coppola. It's his first. It's his Willie Chichi. The character's called. Um, yeah, The Godfather is his first credit, although he's actually uncredited. Mm-hmm. He's credited in the second one. But yeah, this this was his... Uh, Coppola kind of discovered him. Wow, how about that? So yeah, um, so Tessio comes to see him. Tessio, middle-aged man played by um, Abe Vigoda. I'm trying to think... I've, I've seen Abe Vigoda in loads of stuff without knowing what I've seen him in. He's kind of one of those characters, which he, do, he does crop up in quite a few things. Yeah, he does. I'm just looking through stuff to see. He was in Cannibal Run 2. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah, we see we see him in we see him in various things. But anyway, um, he offers to sort of arrange a meeting, and of course, he immediately knows. Michael immediately knows, and he's actually asked, "Do you know how they're going to meet you?" Yes, he's offered me. You know, guaranteed my safety, and you can see it on his face. And what I love is you can see Diane Keaton in shot, and Diane Keaton is um, clueless, obviously, absolutely clueless as what's going on. They're just yeah, at a sad. They're at a funeral, do you know what I mean? Mm. So I really love that. Um, and then he, he does indicate that he's agreed to be uh, godfather to the child. And uh, we the meeting is going to be the same day as the christening. But while the now the christening happens, I always remember hearing on the commentary that he said it's really, uh, Coppola was saying, um, my wife was always um, really struggled to watch this scene because Diane Keaton's holding the baby at one point and her head is just not supported at all. She just says it's really <laughs> awkward. So Sophia Coppola is is that baby. Um, and I remember it was Joe Mantegna said that when they filmed three, they filmed in in the same church. And Coppola said to him, "Do you remember this is the church where we did da da da?" And, and Joe Mantegna was like, "Oh wow, brilliant!" And he said, "Do you remember the baby in that scene?" And he said, "Yeah." And then he just pointed at Sophia, and and Joe Mantegna was like, "Oh, it just sort of gave me shivers." It was just. Um, <laughs> And I really love this, and it's all in the editing, and also the the crescendoing of the music. It's organ music. Mm. Um, he basically kills everybody off, and it's being intercut with him renouncing during the baptism. Evil. Yeah, renouncing evil and renouncing the devil and all that kind of shit. It's just lovely. Lovely. It's, 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 again, it's one of those you know sort of I mean? iconic scenes in cinema as well, isn't it? It's like when you talk about sort of editing, you're yeah. always going to look at that that particular scene where it's basically death and destruction. And yeah, you've got, inter- you've got intercut with it, a deeply re- religious. You've um, got. Clemenza, yeah, you've got Clemenza climbing, climbing stairs, which made me think of Scotty. Oh, and, bless him. Um, shooting some, shooting them in the lift. You got a guy caught in sort of a revolving door and shot, shot by Joe Spinell. Shot in the face. Oh that is Joe Spinell who shoots, shoots mm. him. You've got Mo Green shot in the eye. Jesus, that's going to hurt. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of an uh, unconvincing right shot to the eye because it's like kind of stays there for a bit. Goes. And then the blood decides to come out. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not bad actually. I always thought it looked pretty good. I did wonder how they did it because he's like, you you don't want shattering glass near someone's eye and things like that. No. But they, they they did it. So yeah, we've got a, a run of them. We've got uh, the, the makeup and scribs and all the Tommy effects. Gunned I, in I think bed. have to be Tommy Gunn did bed. Put mistress, wife, bed, girlfriend, sure. whoever, yeah. mistress, good. mistress, girlfriend, wife, whoever she is, caught up in that as well. It's unfortunate, um, isn't it? It's a little bit like um, it reminded me of when Samuel L. Jackson was shot in Goodfellas. There was just a little bit of like this sort of cleaning up, cl- cleaning up after yourself sort of thing and cleaning, killing these people off. Mm. Um, what was it? What was the other one? Barzini, I think, is the one shot on the steps by somebody impersonating a police captain. Yeah, he shoots three people, doesn't he? The police. Officer. Who does that police officer? Yeah, yeah he shoots. Yeah, he shoots two or three. So yeah, we we just see everyone that matters, including Mo Green, because that's where they want to go next. You almost forget Mo Green, but of course, if they want to move to Vegas and have him out of the picture, they do that. And so they're all yeah. He kills them all off. Comes out of the comes out of the funeral just afterwards. He gets a whisper in his ear, which is clearly him being told it's done. And at the same time, he's like kissing the babies and all the rest of it. And then suddenly he turns to Carlo and says, you're not going to Vegas. I, I go back to the house and wait for me. Because Carlo, when Sonny was shot, what I don't think we made clear, he beat, Carlo beat his wife to draw out Sonny hmm. so that it was a setup to get Sonny shot. Son of a bitch. Yeah. 
So, um, yeah, Sonny's... Uh, the other thing is, we see how far Michael's gone because Carlo is fucking terrified once he's at the house and realises. Yeah. He just says to him, you have to answer for Santino. And he actually lies to him, which I don't think Don Vito would do because he says, you know, I'm not... He tells him he's not going to kill him. I'm not going to make... I'm not going to make the you know the father of my god the mother of my godchild a he widow. He might be being technical, as like I'm not going to do it personally. Possibly, that never thought that's not him, but it kind of is. Like, one, one of my guys might, him. but yeah, <laughs> he's garroted. He's garroted by uh, Clemenza, and he well, actually kicks him. out the window because he's, hmm. he's sat in the front seat of the car. He basically thinks he's moving away, and that's it. At the same time, Tessio was about to go somewhere and, and suddenly Hagen's like, no, I, I can't come with you. You just got to get in the car. And Sal knows what's going on. He just turns and says, I always like Michael. Do you tell him it wasn't, but, you know, personal, mm. it's just business. Um, and I think that's where, as far as we go, until we get to a few days, it must be a few days uh, later. Con- yeah, pa- Connie has a go for killing. Uh... Yeah, I think this is a few days later because they're packing up. They're packing to go to Vegas. You actually see furniture being moved around. And she gets out of a cab or a car or something hysterical, runs in uh, to Michael, and she's screaming at him, you killed him. And Connie stood there hearing this. And not only does he sort of calmly cuddle her and then just hand her off to somebody else and get her out of there, but he turns afterwards and I think lights a cigarette or something. And he doesn't even sort of realise that, like, Connie would be a bit unsettled by that. He doesn't go to say or defensively do anything. He's just, oh, well, you know, until Michael. And she just asks him, is it true? And it's quite a tense sequence because he's he's sort of saying, don't ask me about my business. Mm. And he's getting angrier and angrier until eventually he says, okay, just this once. And she asks if he killed Carlo. And he says no. And she looks relieved. So I don't know if she, it's just... That's just what she wanted to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's what he's but doing. Yeah, at that point. He's kind of like feeding her what, what she wants to hear in. Mm. But it soon kind of ends as she kind of re- like looks and realises how I, like the, the shadow of Vito's... Yeah, because that. obviously some of the people arrive and they go over and start kissing his hand. They call him Don Vito. And then a guy, the final shot of the film, guy walks over pushes the door and we see it shut on Diane Keaton. Mm. It'll never be a woman's world. And that's the final shot of the film. Well, it'll always be that world, isn't it? Of, of, well, of but he, he, promised her, he promised her in five years, we'd be completely legitimate. Mm. That was probably before the end of the forties or around 1950. His father died in 55. They still hadn't made it. I think next week they're dancing uh, very early in the film at some event. And she says, Michael, you told me we were going to be legitimate in five years, and that was, I think she says something like seven years ago. That was seven, yeah. It's like, they still haven't done it. Working on it, okay. And then there's a big there's a big gap between part two and part three, isn't there? Like, yeah. Uh, part... What would 20-year gap? Was it like 1990, no. 89, 90 when it came out? No, yeah, it was 16 years after the second one. There we are. Uh, I can't count. Chronologically... It's similar because oh, yeah. the, the second one finishes in sort of mid late sixty mid sixties something like that, and the third one is set in like nineteen seventy nine. Sure. So yeah, I'll just go first with my final thoughts. I've got a lot to add to what I said earlier. Actually, this film is as good as its as its reputation, in my opinion, and it's one of those films that you 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 watch, ready to love. 
because it comes with a reputation, or you or you watch with a pressure of feeling you should love it. Uh, we prestige. Little, we were we it were talking a little bit picture. about. We were talking a little bit before we started recording because we were talking about Scorsese, but that only came off the fact that um, we were talking about somebody's filmography or something, and and a film got mentioned, and it was Scorsese and so on. And we we mentioned, oh no, we were looking at. Um, uh, highest rate, ranked uh, rated films of all time, like AFI lists, Empire Magazine lists, that sort of thing. And we read out a list, and we got to Raging Bull, which was like fifth in one of them, or something like that. And we, Raging Bull's a film like that, that it's one of those films that when it finishes, if you don't love it, you feel like there must be something wrong with you, because its reputation is just so ingrained. And this is one of those films, and it's a film that like it would be. I, I almost wish I didn't like it, so I could sit here. And give a braver review than this. I'm actually sat reviewing a Stone Cold classic, and agreeing that I, it it deserves to be a Stone Cold classic. It, it's as good as that. The character work is as good as anything I've ever seen in any film. Certainly from certainly from the Michael character, it gets it, it gets all of the details. So, what's the word? There's such granularity to the detail. Down to throwing sandwiches around at a wedding, down to down to the label on a bottle, down to remembering to put a wooden bumper on the front of a car. Um, this was this was forged in adversity from a, not a massive budget, and yet it's one of the prestige pictures. You, you watch a lot of prestige pictures, or a lot of pictures that are I, like I struggle with Citizen Kane, and I, I'm not suggesting it's anything other than a great film, by the way, but I've never enjoyed it. I find it a really difficult film to watch. Chris was saying very similar about Raging Bull before we, we started here, and I'm a bit ambivalent on Raging Bull. The Godfather is one of those films that I don't have any difficulty in loving. I think it, it just romps through its running time, no problem, after that first 25 minutes. And that first 25 minutes is full of little details that I'm just absorbing and picking up and enjoying anyway. And there's lots of different little conversations happening. Every performance is terrific. Every casting decision feels right to me. I don't know that the brothers look like brothers, but they're so they're so different as characters that it's actually kind of appropriate to have them as very difficult physical type, different physical types anyway. The story's great. The character work is where this film wins, but it looks and sounds terrific. I, I love it every bit of as much of its reputation. Don't watch it that often. Probably haven't seen it for five or six years before we came to this tonight. I'll be interested to see how I respond to part two because I've, I've flip-flopped over over them over the years. There have been times I think I've thought two is the better film. The majority of my life and the majority of the time when you ask me, I consider The Godfather to be the better film of the two. And uh, I'll be interested to see how we come to this next week. But partly because of that film, I just feel that I feel a family here. And I, and I just feel that that's attention to detail, that's preparation, and that's everyone bringing their A-game. A I love it. Yeah, I, I, I agree pretty much what you said, really. Uh, I mean, I can probably pick faults of it as someone who is not accustomed to it as, as, as much. And it's mostly down to, like, preferential taste at the end of the day however what happened i kind of knew it'll happen uh doing this doing this even this podcast was i kind of want to watch it again because i'm having days taken it i want to actually sort of rewatch it and and with almost sort of that sort of certain perspective appreciate it more for what it is and i'll probably get a lot more out of it i'll probably if i watch it again i'll probably go oh yeah i'll i'll enjoy it a heck of a lot more uh, but there isn't really much to say about it for me because I think it, everything else has kind of already been said. Uh, but as Dave said, it is more of a character piece, and I guess I'm a bit more of a narrative man, but 
I think it's just down to personal taste. But uh, we, all, we all think we're into story, and we all think we're into it. We we all know what we think we're into, mm. but the proof tends to be in the pudding. And, and over over time, I clearly like world building and character work far more than I'm fussed about what happens. Mm. It, you know, it, it, at a broad level. When I go and watch even a Bond film, I don't really give a shit what happens in it. <laughs> in, a strange, yeah. <laughs> in a strange kind of way, if it looks right, feels right, and it's, the characters kind of it's feel what... why you like Doctor No a lot, because, as you said, it's just Sean Connery just looking around. <laughs> strolling stro- stro- around, looking cool in a nice warm location and shit, yeah. yeah. I, love Do- I love Doctor No, and actually, narratively, it's not one of the stronger films in the series. So, it's visually um, appealing. It isn't just visuals, although I am a bit of a sucker for a pretty film, which is it's funny because I'm not that visual in life. I mean, when I go to presentations and stuff, maybe, you know, courses at work and stuff like that, when they start showing us fucking pictures to prove points and drawings and all that kind of thing, visuals, charts, I can't be fucked. I just want to read the text. So I'm not very visual, but I, I do have a weakness for pretty films. This is a very pretty film in places. I think the um, difference in I that like... is um, it, it's just down to care. And yeah. attention to detail, and I like that. Yeah, because Paul has obviously come from that come from that Italian, Italian background. Definitely, he knows you know what details to put in there and what what you would expect. Because I'm sure that you know, there are other people, audiences from similar backgrounds, saying, "Oh, that's wrong," or "That's wrong," or "I recognise that from my childhood." I recognise that from growing up. Recognises things. I mean, the thing, I, I mean, Game of Thrones is a very very good example. I don't give a shit what happens at the end of that show. I don't care who ends up on the Iron Throne. I don't care about anything that happens. I just like the first couple of series where they were set, where where they were set in the sort of chessboard, and I don't care after that. And and I think it is. I do like narratives because I do like talking through what happens in films. So we're only talking about an accentuation. It's not like I'm not interested in story and Chris yeah, yeah. ain't interested in character. Oh no, no, it's all. But we're all interested in all of it. But it's preferences. But, the weight, the weight of my heart is world building without any question at all, and um, this film has it in spades. I love it. Yeah, funny enough, I can't really add <laughs> too much. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. It's very much a prestige picture, um, and there is a lot of weight. Um, like when people ask you what's your favourite film, there is pressure on you to say something like Godfather or even Godfather Part Two. Um, like we were discussing this, we like kind of Bernies, just say we kind of Bernies. Um, what's like a really bad film that you could choose? Um, One tough bastard. One tough, yeah. <laughs> Freddie got fingered. Um, die another day. <laughs> oh god. Um, somebody out there will have die another day as their favourite film, and God love them. Um, yeah, it's just one of those things. There's a real kind of prestige picture, in it, and it regularly tops top top ten films. You know that sort of thing as, as we've seen A5 BFI um, Empire Total Film ad nauseum. Because um, I think I seem to remember when Lord of the Rings came out that topped the charts um and then everything seemed to settle down and it was kind of recognized for the for the sheer epic story that it was um but that's another story for another day <laughs> um yeah I, I, there is the one thing i would find fault with if if anything at all is just for that, you know representation of, of violence also representation of a lot of female characters in this film but again that's so just, that's want, just like that, so that's just like how it was women getting hit properly no, that's not what I meant at all. Yeah, why can't they make it graphic? Like, why can't they make men? it more graphic, more violent, more, more blood? Um, no, I, I just think it's, it's testament to like the editing and to the makeup, um, just how skillfully it was done. I mean, I, I, I do, I do think it's, you know, I'm, I'm not complaining that, you know, I'm totally not. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
um, it's horrific anyway. But I just got to study in stark contrast that you know, stark contrast that you know we can see one and another. But that's you know, it, it does go on behind closed doors, and because you've got, you've got that family um, aspect to it, um, so I can appreciate that it would be a difficult watch for him having to go back and, and do the commentary. Um, but just in general, I mean, you, you know, you've got really classic, classic scenes. Um, but just yeah, the stuff, the violence kind of really stands out. I, it's just obviously I'd seen this film eight, ages ago, but I just totally forgot like how violent this film was, and I was like, eee! okay, having to look aside at some point. Um, yeah, as I say, Michael in terms of his character arc, um, he does you know have the most, in, as you said earlier, Dave, the most interesting one, most meaningful one um, in, in the entire series. Um, actually, yeah, we we were talking on our um, on our chat thread before, and I sort of mentioned how. I remember watching the, the trilogy ages ago, um, and like the second one, part two, is meant to be like the the fan favorite, the one that you know. It's kind of like saying um, like the Star Wars films, everyone goes for em- Empire. No, <laughs> there are similarities everyone though. Goes, because yeah, goes for, like yeah. the second one basically, rather than the first one. But I will point um, out one similarity though, Becca. I think Empire Strikes Back improves Star Wars. It does. It, sure. add, it adds context to it adds character. So much more. It, it, whatever I decide on two versus one next week mm. two makes one a better film oh definitely yeah we can't have one without the other really and it's all important stories have to be told and again it's another landmark moment of of cinema and of cinema to come out of 1970s um america um i don't think i think without it without this and the likes of um the exorcist for example i don't think we would have had jaws and star wars and it's, it's really got a you know a, it owes a lot to, to hollywood cinema and cinema in general um, and also European cinema as well, because um, so that was another big up, upturn during during the seventies, um, which I would like to do a little series on. But I'm sure we probably won't. But never what, mind. Sorry, what would you want to do a series on? Um, some of like the European um, cinemas or come come out of like Central Europe, for example, um, Rainer van der Passmeter, for example. Um, but I don't think I'll ever do it. <laughs> so. Okay. But anyway, that's just an offshoot. We can do anything if if it's possible to make dick and fart jokes out of it. I'll have a go. <laughs> Auf Deutsch, you have to do it in German. So. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I was going to say I can enjoy this one, but I don't think I can enjoy it. But no, it's, it's very, um, very stylish, very much prestige picture um, and a landmark in 70s cinema. That's my final thoughts. Also, I, instead I, of having some fun facts, unfortunately, I don't have any fun facts because Dave has all the factage. So I have right. a little quiz. All right, then. Because <laughs> that went great when we did it before. <laughs> well, this is a three film series right, um, cool. you know Dave's got all the knowledge so we'll just do a little quiz right. I've got a fun fact go on then uh, the choice between Brando uh, the second choice was Laurence Olivier and the studio mostly wants it can you imagine it Ernest Borgnine oh my god <laughs> <Yeah>. really <laughs> can you imagine Ernest Borgnine <laughs> We we only ever hear the stupidest examples of this sort of thing because when the studios make decent suggestions but maybe the one you didn't go with, Mm. it's not worthy of telling stories about, isn't it? But if you just cobble together stories we've told, like particularly with things like Superman, different studio, but Superman and stuff, where we talked about casting for that and on the Rocky series, you, you just just isolating those stories make the studio sound like they know fuck all about anything. And I'm sure that's not quite true, but um, just very much 
just a completely commercial bent on everything. I'm not saying Ernest Borgnine was fucking hot box office by any means, but, but what I'm saying is every time so, I he might... Could've, he could have generally been... We laugh at it now, but in the alternate universe, it could have been great. <laughs> I, I don't know, but all, all I think is that, you know, we, we've talked about the Superman series with the character of Superman, mm. uh, Rocky with the character of Rocky, and Michael Corleone tonight. Three enormously different characters, and yet all of them you're talking about the same people ryan o'neill and so on and and it's just a james khan and it's just like it's almost like they just had a list they went to and that was it whether they suited the characters or not i think this one's pretty cast pretty perfectly so we're doing a quiz for the listeners then um yes only only five questions okay just to see just to test if like us you've been paying attention to the film so question number one and i'll read out the answers next week's podcast (laughs) All right, that's great. <laughs> I just thought it would be something silly to do. Nobody's going to do it, but... I don't care. Question number one. Which of Vita's children is adopted? Question number two. What business does Lotto recommend that they all go into? We obviously we discussed this earlier in the podcast. Question number three. Who's Vita's oldest son? And question number four. What does Vita demand in order for the peace between the five families to hold on to um, to be upheld? And question number five, who masterminds the attempt on Vito's life? I do want to just point out one flaw in the questions there. In, in question one, you said which of his kids are adopted. Well, not adopted, but... No, no, but they're all actors, Becca. Well, I know. <laughs> <laughs> None of them are related to Martin and Brando, you other. know. No, I know, sadly. <laughs> okay. Guess, guess what? Uh, it's, it's only a film, you know? It's not only a film. <laughs> It's, it's an epic storyline. It's a book as well. <laughs> it's I can't see it as somebody's a, mind, you know. Can't see it as a musical. Those no, strange things have happened. All right, social media folks. Uh, you can find me at Cinema Talks on Twitter, though, where they tweet, and you can also find uh, the podcast as well as the bat- our back catalogue with all the bomb films, which aren't on iTunes at cinematalks.co.uk. You can find me at the Pasty Kid 1976 on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at expect us to talk. If you like, you can drop us an email at expect us to talk at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can find us on YouTube where a lot of our videos are. So if you go into YouTube and type in do you expect us to talk? And we are also on yeah, iTunes, um, Stitcher. We are not on Pinterest, we are not on um, Grinder <laughs> or Tinder. That doesn't mean we're on like Badoo or Match.com, by the way. That, those are examples of dating sites, which is not just naming <laughs> the only ones we're not on. I'm trying to cover all bases there. Um, we're not on Pinterest. I quite like to be on Pinterest, but what, what will we place pictures of apart from the films that we review? Um, yeah, you can find us basically yeah, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. What's the other one we're not on? I don't know. We're not on Letterboxd anymore. No, I deleted that. That, yeah, was, that was an epic fail. <laughs> Yeah, because basically me and Chris didn't get involved in any way whatsoever. No, I thought, oh, let's do that. I, 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 I can't main, maintain my own letterbox, so... And I can't be asked. <laughs> no, I've, I've trouble with mine. I'm like, oh, I saw a film. Quick, but I write it down. Strangely enough, I've got this format where I like tell people about films I've been watching. Yeah. It's this fucking podcast. <laughs> it's, it's called this one, isn't it? You do quite a lot of podcasts, though, Dave, because you've got this one, Three Wise Men, um, for Netflix, um, and various other ones that you do. 
that's it really although i did i did record a what's it called i did record smorgasbord, that was the other one yeah no smorgasbord we haven't recorded one i recorded one of those two months ago and didn't come out yet um it is coming out i keep being told but i don't know what's going on with that um i did record an eccentric earth last night coming soon with, with amy walker oh yeah looking forward to listening to that one what's eccentric okay. earth one of my loyal listeners there. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Walker's podcast. She just basically... Oh, okay, is that hers? Right, sorry. I thought she it was basically, She basically reads her guest a story. It's cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I know it, about it, it, but I've yet to listen, unfortunately. But I, didn't I was on... I haven't been on for ages. react to it. Yeah, I, I haven't been on for ages, but I was on episode... This Last night was something like episode 20 or something. I was on episode two. So there is one out there. there was, I think it's called... The, the the incredible Leo Major or something like that. Leo Major was the story she told me the first time I was on there. That's that's out there. She said to me last night, which was really cool, because she said it on air, so I'm not bigging myself up or something. She said it herself. Um, that's the most downloaded and watched episode, the, the one I was on before. The Leo Major story is really good. Mm-hmm. Mm. Let's check it out. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, I'm on episode two of that. But other people you know as well, Pete D. Gaskell's been on it and uh, Chris Haig's been on a few of them. Uh, Addy and Hang, who, who you will have heard with me on Smorgasbord, has been on a few of them. So yeah, she just reads like people a, a, a funny, but not a funny story, a weird story every week about somebody, somebody from history, and you just react. Well, you just do what I do, react flippantly with silly jokes and interruptions. So yeah, it's cool. <laughs> That's fair enough. Anyway, I, I cannot imagine what would follow on from the Godfather. <laughs> what could be the next film? I don't know. We've got the the grand the, the grand master the god grandfather. <laughs> well, it's obviously got to be the next masterpiece of uh, the godfather of uh, Coppola, um, Jack. Obviously, Peggy, Peggy Sue got married. Peggy, yeah. <laughs> to Nicolas Cage, I, I think I see the floor. Stoker's Dracula. Oh, that film! <laughs> I don't like that film. I know a lot of people like that film, but yeah, I don't. Or was my co- my cousin once said, <laughs> "Where's Caravan's Dracula?" <laughs> Just, just one, just one. Uh, just one point on that. He, he said on the commentary because it comes up Mario Puzo's The Godfather, um, and he said that he always where he where he adapted anything, he would always make sure the author's name was in the title. So he did John Grisham's The Rainmaker and so on. Of course. Uh, funny thing is, Bram Stoker's Dracula has always been known as Bram Stoker's Dracula. That film, not just Dracula. No, yeah, this, Stoker's, this film has yeah. never been known as Mario Puzo's The Godfather. No, it's a bit strange, isn't it? But let's leave that on a cliffhanger. We can come back and discuss that more next week, which means... Dot, dot, dot. Do you expect to talk we'll return with Godfather Part 2? Didn't fucking see that coming. Now, is that Mario Puzo's The Godfather Part 2? <laughs> Mario Puzo's Godfather Part 2. Like or Godfather. perhaps he's a sequel. Perhaps it's Mario Puzo 2, Operation Miami Beach. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, folks. Good night. Bye.